get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Well, two seconds to go. That'll do it. The horn sounds and... uh, There will be a new Stanley Cup champion this season in the National Hockey League. The 2019 Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues have been eliminated four games to two in their first round series with the Vancouver Canucks. That's what it sounded like during the bubble as the Blues were eliminated. Pandemic. In the postseason against hey, the Vancouver Canucks. You were at 2.30 in the morning. Uh, that was the one and only time that Vancouver has made the postseason in the last eight years. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Appreciate you guys tuning in. The Blues and Canucks back in action tonight. You'll hear that game right here on 101 ESPN. Your home of the St. Louis Blues. Alex has pregame coverage starting at 6 o'clock. Alex, the Blues and Canucks once again find themselves in remarkably similar situations. In fact, so much so that if you look at the NHL draft standings right now, the rankings of where you would draft if it started today, the Blues have 72 points on the season. They are drafting ninth as of today. The Canucks have 73 points on the season. They are drafting 10th as of today. If the Blues were to beat the Canucks tonight, they would flip. If the Blues lose tonight, it's basically a four-point game swing, depending on which direction you go. The Canucks would suddenly be 10th, and the Blues would have a little bit more of a floor there between them. Alex, the reason I bring this up is because they were in basically the same spot in 2020. Now, they took different spots to get here, but they are once again in the same spot today. Which of these two teams do you think is closer to competing for something meaningful, though? Do you feel strongly one way or the other that one of these teams is closer than the other. I I would say, pick up your Homer hat, ladies and gentlemen. I would say the Blues are closer than the Vancouver Canucks because of goaltending. Because in my opinion, Thatcher Demko has not done anything to prove that you can go on a run and win something. And you've got a Stanley Cup champion goaltender in between your pipes and Jordan Bennington. But other than that, they're about as eerily similar as you as you can ask for. I mean, down to the reason that they just traded away their captain to the point that these two teams are as as eerily similar. They both have elite playmakers. They both have, um, if you want to label it, overpaid defensive cores. They do have one star in Vancouver on the defensive side. The Blues are hoping for a star on their side. But the difference between these two teams competing is one that 
the uh, draft capital that the Blues have in this upcoming offseason with three first-round picks, the prospects that they have in their system, I would say trump the Vancouver Canucks, and goaltending would be my number one card that says they're closer to competing than Vancouver. I, I think I would lean towards the Blues as well. I, I When I look at the defense, do they have a number one potentially in Quinn Hughes? I don't think so. But I think they've got better depth up in their forward grouping with Kairou Thomas. And I, I just think the top nine, looking at them right now and then also just how it kind of projects moving forward, I think is better for the St. Louis Blues. Now, the defense is a major issue for the St. Louis Blues, but it's not like Vancouver's is that much better. And they they do have their number one, so maybe they can retool it a little quicker. But I would lean towards the St. Louis Blues because you've got your top nine forwards. And though you don't have that number one defenseman on your roster, I think you can build around that defense and try and outscore your problems with the way they're building with their forward depth and potentially have that guy that we're talking about, Scott Perunovich, end up being maybe that number one or at least becoming closer to that guy. Yeah, and that's where I would go the opposite, which is on Vancouver, man, you've got that number one defenseman. Now, we could argue his defensive capabilities on Quinn Hughes. However, if I told you today that Scott Perunovich becomes a player that is playing 25 minutes a night and in his next two seasons gets you about 140 points. You guys feel pretty differently about the trajectory of the St. Louis Blues all of a sudden? Yeah, that's I, mean, I feel what, good. That's what the Canucks have. They have that in Quinn Hughes. Over the last two seasons, he's averaged 70 points per year. He is a plus 28 in that stretch on a team that is not very good, and he's playing roughly 25 minutes a night. T-Bone, you mentioned outscoring your mistakes defensively. That's what Quinn Hughes does. That's what he's made a career out of so far. Now, he's not a big goal scorer. He has a total of 13 goals over his past two seasons, but he is such an excellent distributor that it makes up for any other deficiencies that he potentially has. He is a driving force of the Vancouver Canucks power play. He is a driving force of their five-on-five offense as well. He's the piece that the Blues are missing. The Blues have a lot of the other things that the Canucks have to offer right now. They've got a young scoring threat. They've got some centermen that you love to offer. Like they, They've got pieces. The difference right now between the Blues and the Canucks, in my opinion, is that the Vancouver has one of the hardest things in hockey to be able to find, which is a true, legitimate number one defenseman on a really good contract, and he's only 23 years old. But you can have that true number one defenseman, but what's the rest of it look beyond that? And that's where I look at Vancouver and say, I don't think they have anything that would get you excited. Like Tyler I mean, Pedersen has 93 points. No, but this I'm season. saying on defense, yeah, on the defensive side of things, like you've got Quinn Hughes, but then you've got a $6 million Tyler Myers, who Vancouver's been trying to trade for the last two seasons. Uh, you got an Oliver Ekman Larson that they were trying to trade this offseason. They've got like abilities on their side of things so do the blues and yes you have that that yeah, super that's like saying other than robert thomas what do the blues have to be excited but about I, I mean, like and this is gonna robert thomas this is gonna sound change. crazy here for a minute but like yes colorado had kale mccarr the best defenseman in the national hockey league but they also had devon taves who was playing very well for them and josh manson and and eric johnson you've got to have pieces around that and that's why if you can find that scott perunovich for the blues you're in a better position than Vancouver because you've got guys who can compete at that level where I don't think the Vancouver Canucks do. See, that's where I would disagree with you. I think it is way easier to build two through six of a defensive core than it is to build number one. The, the hardest thing to do in a rotation is to find that number one starter. The hardest thing to do on a football team is to find the quarterback. 
I can show you a bunch of teams that have built up great rosters two through 53 for the NFL. I can show you a lot of those teams that didn't end up going very far that season because unless you have the quarterback in place, none of the rest of it matters. It feels that way with the Blues right now where you could build. I actually don't think the Blues defensive core is all that bad if you have a number one defenseman. It's not ideal. You don't love the contracts that they're on right now. But if I slot all of them down a spot, right, it's like the Cardinals rotation. If Jack Flaherty was your two and then Mike Gliss is your three, Matts is your four, and then whoever you want to, Montgomery is your five, man, that's a damn good rotation. The problem is all of them are put up a slot. Same thing is true, I think, for the Blues defensive core. Colton Pareko's a number two defenseman on a team. I think he's a pretty good number two. Same thing for Justin Falk as a three, and then one of Krug or Letty as a four. Like, suddenly it all starts fitting in a lot easier. That's what they're missing, though. And finding that guy is nearly impossible. The only one you could really find in the last 15 years for the Blues is the guy that you drafted in the top five. So going out there and getting him, way easier said than done. I would say the same thing is true for the Avalanche. The hard part was finding Kale McCarr. The easier part is piecing things around him. Yeah, I I mean, it, it absolutely is. The other part for Vancouver that the Blues have the advantage on is depth in the offensive side of things. Vancouver's got Elias Pettersson, but they also had Bo Horvat, who was their best player, and traded him away because they couldn't get that figured out. They're probably going to be trading Brock Besser after this season. They actively tried to trade him at the deadline. The reason these two teams are separate, in my opinion, I look at Vancouver. Vancouver's trying to do what St. Louis did this offseason, but they can't with the amount of money that's tied up. They've got their piece in place on defense, but I think they view this as we've got to retool this because we don't have the offense. And if you break it down into categories of offense, defense, and goaltending, the Blues got two of those three. It's finding that defenseman, which is very difficult, but you can you can find ways to mold that around if you need to. Uh, Vancouver might be missing two of the three. In fact, all of the three, if their defense don't work out as well around Quinn Hughes is what they have now. And what I have been saying is it's hard to find that number one defenseman. And I believe that to be true. But Joey Vitale, if you remember, this was like a year ago now. This was almost exactly one year, year ago now that I think about it, because it was when Scott Perunovich was starting to get closer to the NHL level. He was performing at a high level down in the AHL. Joey Vitale came on with us, and he was talking about who Scott Perunovich reminds him of, and it is apt for what the game is tonight. But I'm telling you from a potential standpoint, Scott Perunovich looks so much like Quinn Hughes. It is, it is insane. I mean, Chris Kerber on the call a couple nights ago, we kept calling him Tory Krug on the power play, and I kept hitting him. I'm like, listen, it's not Krug, it's Perunovich. But the point was... He looks so much like Krug, the way he moves his hips and the way he gets out of trouble. And you think he's cornered, but then he escapes it and he finds that lane. That's the creativity of him. And I think if he goes in the minors, plays a lot of games, he's going to come up and he's going to be quite a player. I don't think we're going to have a Kale McCarr, but can we have something close to Quinn Hughes? I really think we can with this kid. If he does become that, now I'm taking the blue side of things. And there's no question about it. Because the one thing that is holding me back is the thing that we've been talking about all season long, which is, man, how do they get that number one defenseman? It's really hard to find, and it remains really hard to find. But then, Alex, as I was reading over on The Athletic earlier today, they had a piece on the 10 most underrated defensemen in the NHL. And I saw two familiar faces on this list, neither of which currently plays for the St. Louis Blues. Vince Dunn was one. Jake Wallman was the other. Both of them play a style... That is not that stay-at-home defenseman. They're puck movers. They're potentially goal scorers. They're guys that drive offense, kind of like Tory Krug. 
kind of like Scott Perunovich. And I do have a question, and I'm not hockey smart enough to know if this is the case for the Blues. But I think at a certain point in time, start reading all the tea leaves, makes you wonder at a minimum, are these the type of defensemen that for whatever reason don't work well here in St. Louis? I don't know if it's the coach. I don't know if it's the system. I don't know if it's just the players don't fit. I, I don't know what the explanation is for it. But I do wonder if you're able to reach your full potential here in St. Louis as this puck moving defenseman because it has not worked out well for these guys that have ended up moving on and having success elsewhere. We'll see with Perunovic. He is more talented, I do believe, than either of the two names that I just mentioned. He's more in his prime than Tory Krug is at the time that he decided to sign here in St. Louis. But that's going to be the big question that I have with Perunovic next year as we really get to see him get that development time in St. Louis. Is this something that can work here? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question because... I mean, you look at Jake Wallman and Vince Dunn, and they're both having outstanding seasons. And it was a great piece on The Athletic that talked about these underperforming defensemen. Here's my opinion on it. Jake Wallman is benefiting from playing with a soon-to-be Norris Trophy caliber defenseman and Marit Sider. Now, that's not to take anything away from him because he's having a really good season, but he's also playing with a stud of a young defenseman that Detroit has. Vince Dunn's the one that's about as interesting as you can ask for because he's plus uh, 25 on the season with 61 points. He's been their best defenseman. They're using him 64% of the time in the offensive zone, but he's also playing against the other team's top lines. Now, to cycle back to St. Louis, it's not that it doesn't work under Craig Berube. It's just they don't get the trust from the coach that other guys do. And that's what Vince Dunn went through. That's what Jake Wallman went through. They never could be those those top pair defensemen because they weren't as good in the defensive zone as they were in the offensive zone. So that's going to be the biggest question mark with Scott Perunovic. But it's also the injury side of things. Berube's not asking you to be a shutdown uh, Jay Bowmeister defenseman, he just wants you to be able to move the puck quickly out of the zone. And the question for Scott Perunovic is, can you live up to those expectations that Perubi wants in this circumstance? Because it hasn't worked with Krug and it hasn't worked with Letty. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Blues back in action tonight against Vancouver. It'll be interesting to watch Quinn Hughes on the ice against St. Louis. It looks like Jordan Bennington going to be in the starters net for the Blues. That is the report coming out of Morning Skate today. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll talk to Jeremy Rutherford, Blues insider for The Athletic. want to get his thoughts on the conversation we just had. If you had to pick one, which team's closer to competing on a significant level, Vancouver or St. Louis? Talk about that with JR coming up in 15 minutes. But next, do the Cardinals have enough offense to be able to make up for their lack of dynamic pitching, specifically from the rotation? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I think that that rotation is going to be the make or break for this team. And I do think that Jordan Montgomery and Miles Michaelis are a little bit underrated on the national scene, uh, Michaelis especially. But I do understand the questions and concerns over the rotation. So we'll see. But my bold prediction is St. Louis 95 wins, and I think they win the division by double digits. 
That was Katie Wu on with us yesterday alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex, that rotation is going to be under a lot of scrutiny for the Cardinals this season. Frankly, it's deserved scrutiny. It's been the thing that has really fallen flat for the Cardinals over the last couple of seasons, especially uh, last year. They didn't have enough. They had to go fortify it at the deadline, and then you ended up having Montgomery and Quintana, both of whom were great starters for the Cardinals down the stretch, but you don't want to have to do that on an annual basis. You want to have a number one starter that you can lean upon, and that's what most of the other legitimate contenders in the National League have. MLB.com put together their list of the 10 best rotations in all of baseball today. The National League was well represented in the top seven, to say the least. They had the Mets at number one, the Brewers at number two, the Braves at number three, the Phillies at five, and the Padres at seven. That's five of probably the top seven teams in the National League going into the season that are considered to be top seven baseball rotations, not just in the NL, in the entire sport. They also had, on the outside looking in, the Dodgers as the next team in line. So they had the Dodgers as the 11th best uh, rotation in baseball, basically. The only team that is a real contender, based on all of us, what our feelings are, in the National League that does not, according to these rankings, have a top 11 rotation in the sport is the Cardinals. Alex, when you hear that and you think about, okay, well then how do the Cardinals keep up? Do you think the Cardinals have the offense to make up for that lack of pitching or that perceived lack of pitching? Well, I mean, first impression is that they, this pitching can't be that bad. And I seem it, I know there are people that doubt it. And of course, now we've seen the spring trainings of the injured Adam Wainwright, the struggling Jack Flaherty and Jordan Montgomery. And then you get to the bullpen. But to answer your question, yeah. I, I mean, last season they had, what, the fifth best offense in terms of OPS at the end of the season. And that was without a full season of who they have this year. That was with a underperforming and injured Tyler O'Neill. That was with you playing Paul DeYoung a large majority of the time. And Yadier Molina was your everyday catcher. Now you're adding Wilson Contreras, who has been multiple All-Stars in the past. You're adding Brendan Donovan to be that infielder now to where Tommy Edmond flips over. You have a sure thing when it comes to your DH with a Nolan Gorman and then everyone else on the bench that has been competing for it. And you're full, fulfilling a full year of Lars Newtbar, Tyler O'Neill, and bringing in the Rookie of the Year. So for the way that they finished last year, and yes, you had to get MVP performances from Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado. Why would I expect that to change? Yes, you had Albert Pujols, but if you're putting three or four guys together that didn't perform last year to this season, yeah, I think they can overcome if their pitching is as bad as they're making it out to be. Yeah, I I think the offense can help them overcome any pitching issues that they're going to have, and I I think they might have those. I I think what you're probably going to see is the rotation probably is kind of middling of the pack and probably doesn't have enough swing and miss. And it, and the Cardinals will have to make that adjustment at the trade deadline, like we've seen in the last two seasons, where they go out and they add a starter at the deadline. Hopefully, they don't have to just add like a Jay Happ or John Lester. Hopefully, they're looking for an ace. But I, I think the offense can kind of make up for any lackluster pitching they get because the identity of this team is going to be their offense. I mean, it, it's no coincidence that our top twenty Cardinals list that we've been doing. I think it's seven of the ten top ten have been offensive bats, and I think the last four days have been offensive players. Goldie Arnado, Contreras, Tyler O'Neill, Brendan Donovan's up on that list. So it's no coincidence that those guys are in our top ten. It's because if this team's going to win, not just in the regular season, but I think in the playoffs, it's going to be around an offensive identity, and I, I think they're going to have to outscore some of their pitching problems 
because I, I think the rotation probably will be middling. I think it will be about 15 to 20 when you're looking at it, when you rank it in Major League Baseball. And I think the bullpen's probably going to be the same thing. The bullpen has a lot of question marks surrounding it. So I think the offense is going to have to carry this team, and I think they're an offensive identity team. I think the offense is going to have to carry them, and I think it will during the regular season. I think my question, though, is more on what it looks like in the playoffs. Because we've seen this team win 90 to 95 Seems games to be over the, the question every seasons. year. Yeah. What we see in the postseason, and I think this has become a theme, is their pitching's not good enough relative to the teams around them. My hope was that Jack Flaherty would change that. My belief, frankly, was that Jack Flaherty would change that. I've seen nothing, and I, you know I'm the last person that's going to read into spring. I think you need to see some like pretty positive trend lines. I've seen nothing in the spring to indicate to me that Jack Flaherty's back to being something resembling a number one. Nothing. That could change. Maybe a, a light turns on, the uh, flip is switched, whatever cliche you want to use, and it all worked for Jack going into the season. But if not for him, they don't have a number one right now. The Mets do. The Brewers do, the Braves do, the Phillies do, the Padres do, the Dodgers do. Every other team that you're competing with has a real number one going into the season, and you don't. So for you to be able to make up for that, I don't think that you have the offense to do it, and I'm not sure there is an offense to do that in this version of the National League. Because you look at the Mets, man, they got the stud pitching, but they've also got a very good offense. You look at the Braves, they've got some stud pitchers, also a good offense. Philly, same thing. Padres, same thing. I don't think there's a contender right now for the World Series and the National League that doesn't have both. So if you have a great offense this year, you better be over-freaking-whelming offensively to be able to make up for not having a number one. You either need to get one or Jack Flaherty has to become that. And I'm not disagreeing with getting one. You have to get one if Jack Flaherty doesn't become it. Even if he gets close to it, I still believe you have to go get one because of the uh, uncertainty of your rotation next year. Miles Michaelis pitched as close to a number one as you can ask last season. And you went through three-fourths of that season without Jack Flaherty. You went through three-fourths of that season without Steven Matz. You were on Jake Woodford, Andre Pallante, Dakota Hudson, Matthew Libertor to guide you through the season. And you still finished with a, a decent rotation if you're going to look at how they pitched last year. So this is the part that I just kind of can't get on board with, that their pitching is going to be this bad because you now have another season of Miles Michaelis if he pitches anywhere near what he pitched last season. But the question that I have is not about the regular season because they did make up for it last year. I'm but totally with they you. They pitched well in the postseason, too. The problem in they, the postseason they was... They were okay. I mean, Jose Quintana gave you an opportunity to win that game. Your bullpen was the one that imploded. Your Understood. offense didn't perform. It's both, though. Both of them are connected. And this is where I struggle is like the reason why your offense imploded in the postseason is because you went up against two number ones. Do you have the guys to match that? My answer is no. But do you need the guys to match that if you're all? I, I mean, you can match you what need, those guys. Are, you, you need something that is a break glass in case of emergency. You need to be able to win in multiple ways right now. The way that I look at this season right now currently is unless Jack Flaherty becomes a legitimate number one, the only way for this Cardinals team to get to the World Series is to slug their way there. They have to win like six to four regularly. That's a really hard way to win in the playoffs, man. Like I I can't think of a team recently that did it that way. So if you don't have those legitimate number one guys or a number one guy at a minimum, I, I don't think that you can make the World Series that way. Not with how good the National League is right now, because too many teams have too good a pitching to be able to go go up against them and try to win with this kind of an offense. I mean, all season. I love this offense. You guys know I'm higher on it than you are even. But I, I don't think that you can win this way consistently in the postseason. We've seen 
good pitching typically beats good hitting, especially in the playoffs. Yeah. You're, you're going to have to get it no matter what, but I will, no matter what, be in doubt of this offense in the postseason because we haven't seen it for three years. And that's kind of where, it, I mean, as much as I want an ace for this rotation, I also want an offense that's going to perform in the postseason. Yeah, I mean, but everybody wants that. And the Cardinals have talent to be able to do that, and they've had the talent to be able to do that. But they haven't for two straight years. Understood. It's just, when you're at a three-game sample size, like that's happened sometimes, and that's what they've been in. And I, I, I think they have a great offense this year. I think they're going to be the best offense in baseball. You can't win a World Series unless you have the pitching to be able to go along with it. Every other team that's a real contender in the National League has it. Now it's a question of if the Cardinals do. We're going to talk to Jeremy Rutherford, Blues Insider for The Athletic, coming up next here on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. That's Alex East Tanner. I'm BK. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Let's go out to the hotline right now to be joined by Jeremy Rutherford, Blues Insider for 101 ESPN. And you can find his work over at The Athletic. He joins us now here on the show. JR, how you doing today, buddy? Doing well, doing well. Uh, fun to fill in with you last week and hang out with the boys, BK. Hope you had a good time. I did. I have no voice that remains, but that is neither here nor there. <laughs> it was a great time had by all. Uh, JR, we talked in our open today about the Blues and uh, compared them specifically to the Vancouver Canucks, who they're going to see tonight. It was only three years ago now that these teams met in the postseason during that bubble playoff run, and it's been a winding path to get here, but they're both basically at the same place uh, right now, basically the same spot in the draft order. Uh, They're both, they have talent, but they're missing specific pieces that can make them into contenders. In your opinion, which of these two teams is closer to competing at a meaningful level, the Vancouver Canucks or the St. Louis Blues? Yeah, it's so funny when I heard you guys talking about this topic because uh, Alex probably gets this a little bit with his oldest daughter, and, and you'll get it soon, uh, BK. But last night uh, I was sitting in the living room, and my little 10-year-old said, uh, Dad, who do the Blues play tomorrow? And I said, Vancouver. And he said, who's better in the standings? And I said, I don't know. I haven't looked at the standings in a couple of weeks. They're probably about the same. And he said, well, well, who is? Who is? Check, check. You got to Who is? And, and so I looked it up and saw that they were just the one point uh, difference. And, and they really are about the same. I think you look at these two franchises and, you know, pretty uh, identical in terms of where they're at. Obviously, uh, each team's got different pieces when you think about Cairo and Thomas and you look at Vancouver and they've got Pedersen and, and also Hughes on the back end. Uh, but you look at uh, kind of where they're at, and I don't think that you could give the upper hand to either one. But there are some differences with that said. I think you look at their situations. You look at the Blues' future. They've got uh, six picks in the first two rounds the next two years. And you look at uh, Vancouver, just two picks in the next two rounds the next couple of years. And then also the, the salary cap space is probably where you'd favor the Canucks. When you look ahead next year, the, the uh, Canucks are up against the cap. 
But in two years, just nine players sign with $32 million in projected cap space. And of course, that could go up as well. So I think in terms of who could improve faster, if you look at the contracts, it's probably a situation where the Canucks are going to have some more wiggle room. But uh, but I agree. Yeah, you look at these two teams, and there's a little bit to like about uh, both franchises, but uh, similar as you look at them on paper. Of course, if you're a Blues fan, JR, you hone in on their young defensemen and look at your defense and say, how do we get that in Quinn Hughes? And BK asked the great question uh, to open up our show of, you know, if, if Scott Perunovich becomes Quinn Hughes, then that gets you to the point that you want to be in. But... Why have these mobile, smaller defensive men struggled in St. Louis now that Vince Dunn and Jake Wallman have gone on to have really successful careers elsewhere? Well, yeah, so two-parter. So I look at that. Uh, Scott Prinovich, I'm a huge fan. I think when he's out there, he can be a good player. You know, I think, especially with the injury, but I think when you look at him, kind of to put him in that conversation with Quinn Hughes right now is just far too early. And, And I realize he's smaller and he's that type of player but Quinn Hughes is dynamic and he's been doing it for a couple years and uh, Prinovich has had trouble staying on the ice so once we get a look at Prinovich we could see uh, but I think even a healthy Prinovich uh, I don't know that there's a lot of people that look at him as a top pair guy so that remains to be seen and in terms of why these young puck moving defensemen haven't necessarily worked in St. Louis I think when you look at these couple examples that you're talking about you know Vince Dunn had a pretty good run here Uh, won a Stanley Cup. Uh, The Blues, I think, tried to explore a trade before losing him in the expansion draft. Third rounders, probably best they could come up with. So it wasn't just the Blues around the league. Third rounders, the best you're going to get for Vince Dunn. You know, I don't think that speaks a lot to where he was at. Uh, I think he's gotten a lot more opportunity in Seattle. And the same goes for Jake Wallman. Look, the Blues were a winning team, a Stanley Cup contending team, when both of those guys were here and they weren't going to crack the top four, I think that when they did get top four ice time and both did, uh, they didn't do all that well with it, which isn't a knock on them. They hadn't had a lot of time in the NHL and, and they're playing on a team where if you make a mistake, you you probably got to sit. So there just wasn't the wiggle room, I don't think, for those two types of guys when they got that ice time. Now they go to Detroit, they're rebuilding. Hey, what do you look like on the top pair? Well, with given some time, you look really good. Uh, same with Vince Dunn. So that's not to say that, you know, the Blues and Doug Armstrong haven't moved players who've gone on and played well, and you probably, uh, you know, shouldn't have moved them. But I think in the situation of these two guys, I think they were different type of circumstances. So I think you could get defensemen in here who would work. I don't think it's the system. I don't think it's the coaching. I just think it's the right guy at the right time. So then is Scott Perunovich, in your mind, the key to the Blues blue line in the future? I don't think he can be. I think that you can you can you can hope that he is, and you can hope that he's a top four defenseman soon. And again, I'm a big fan of his skill. I just think, uh, and he'll say this himself, with the three injuries, he just needs to get on the ice. So, if you're looking for this retool to take one two years, I think it's impossible to say that. Scott Prinovich is the key because he's going to get out there and, and turn this defense around. First of all, you look at all these contracts, uh, where's he going to play? I, I understand that if his talent rises, he's going to get the ice time and he's going to get the chance. Uh, but uh, the Blues got some hefty contracts, as we know, in those top three or four spots. And, and where are they going to play those guys unless they're moved? So we'll see. But if and when Scott Prinovich gets that ice time, and if and when he plays well, 
he could definitely help the defensive situation, but I just think that to look at him like a Cairo or Thomas, like you do with those guys on offense at this point is just uh, too early to do so. So what's the next step, JR? Because if you're Doug Armstrong, it's really difficult to sell your fan base on bringing back the same defensive core that you've had issues with the last two seasons. Yeah, and I think he knows that, and I think he's already explored ways to try to fix it. Uh, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. We've heard uh, things around Colton Pareko, and I'm sure he's checked around too with uh, with Tory Krug and or uh, Nick Letty. Uh, but I think that uh, the situation is until we hear about a move or, or, or see something happen this summer, next season, that this is what he has to work with. He said it himself. You know, we've written uh, at The Athletic and that uh, he's made his own bed with these long-term contracts. And in Doug's words, a couple uh, months ago, uh, right around the trade deadline, he said, you got to pay the piper, you know, with these long-term deals. And so that's what they're doing right now. So we can talk about wanting to sell the fan base on whatever, but he can't sell the fan base on anything until a, these guys play better or B he's able to find a taker for one of the contracts. Jeremy Rutherford is our guest for another couple of minutes here on 101 ESPN. You can find his work, of, of course, over at The Athletic and on Twitter at J.P. Rutherford. Uh, J.R., I did want to ask you about the offense that we've seen recently. We talked a bit about it yesterday. Um, some of the underlying numbers are not all that dissimilar from what it's been all year long. But, I mean, the goal production is obviously there, especially from some of the new pieces. How do you evaluate the Blues offense down the stretch, especially as you relate it to basically what we've seen from them since that Arizona game. Yeah, I think it's been better. I think uh, you've got a team that hasn't mailed it in. You know, they're coming most nights. They haven't gotten off to great starts as we saw the other night, uh, but they continue to battle, you know, and, and I think that Craig Bruby's done a good job trying to keep everybody focused. He's moving the line combinations around a little bit. Different guys are getting different looks. A lot of guys are getting opportunities. You see Jake neighbors up there with uh, Cairo and Thomas, you know, Kapanen and, and Brana have moved around. And, you know, I like what I've seen from them offensively. You probably like to see more defensively uh, from Brana. But, you know, this just is what it is right now is, is the way I look at it. Uh, you know, they're going through this situation that they're in. They've lost some uh, key players. Uh, some of those players, like a Tarasenko, O'Reilly, produced a lot in the past, maybe not in the last year. And now you've got some guys who, whether they are young up-and-comers like a neighbors or whether they're, uh, new scenery type guys like Kapanen and Verana, you know, hopefully they're invigorated. That's what the Blues are, are hoping for during this next year or two as they go through this. So offensively, you know, we've seen an uptick a little bit in terms of production, being able to come back in games, so on and so forth. And, you know, the biggest thing is this. In a couple weeks, this is all going to shut down and you're going to have an off season, and these guys are going to have to go work their tails off to put themselves in a better position to see uh, next season what they can do offensively. Because, you know, like Doug Armstrong said, $4.2 million is what they have slated for one player to bring in. There aren't two $6 million players coming onto this offense next year. So it is what it is, and it's going to be up to these players to finish out the season strong, do what they can do, and get themselves ready for next year. JR, appreciate the time as always, man. We'll be reading over on The Athletic. We'll be following over at J.P. Rutherford. Enjoy the game tonight. We'll talk with you again next week, buddy. Yep, thanks, boys. You got it. That's Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on 101 ESPN. Always appreciate his time here on the show. Coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll get to questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
you've got questions, we may have the answers. Maybe? Text 314-399-9646. BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. 399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we'll continue our countdown of the 20 most important players for the Cardinals in 2023. You're never going to believe who comes in at number one. We'll tell you that coming up here in just about Andrew 10 minutes Suarez. or so. From the 615, guys, what lasts longer, Live Golf or the XFL? Ooh. You know, I still haven't watched that golf documentary. It's, on it's very good. Man, I want to get it's into fun. that. I need to now, sit down and watch that. I will say... Don't like overdo yourself. Like one episode a night's good. Yeah, when no, you try apparently pu- that's impossible. When you try to push for two, not gonna lie, I fall asleep every time. <sighs> really? Yeah. Oh no, I feel like that's gonna drag you into it. Um, I, I gotta imagine XFL lasts longer, but with the money, I guess the uh, live is bringing in, and the people are the players that they've recruited. I, I don't know. I would side more XFL just because of who it's backed with. With Dwayne Johnson and the money that goes into it. Um, but I could obviously see uh, Liv continuing I'll to be last definitive long. here, Liv, by far. Um, and it's not because I have like a lot of faith in what they're doing. I don't think it's a particularly sound investment, but like, setting aside, and this is a big setting aside, but all of the political reasons why you don't love what Live Golf is, they got a ton of money that is investing into that. I have no idea if the XFL is going to last more than another year. In St. Louis, it's been a massive success. Elsewhere, not so much. Uh, I was in Las Vegas over the weekend, and my buddy works out there at a sports radio station in Las Vegas. He said they have announced about 5,000 people in the stands for most of their home games so far. He said he'd be surprised if they got more than 1,800 at any of those. The announced attendance is very different than the actual attendance. It has not been successful in a lot of the markets so far. Um, And I don't know how you fix that. I don't know how you make people care in other markets about a spring football league that at best probably amounts to a developmental league for the NFL. I think there's probably a way to steal from minor league baseball ideas of like hey, great promotions. Um, Come out to the ballpark for dollar beer night or whatever. It's similar thing like that for XFL. There's ways you can do it. And clearly it's hit here in St. Louis, but a lot of these markets it has not worked in. I don't know how you change that. The uh, TV numbers are down about 64% from year one at the same time. Uh, The average attendance is down 20% from year one at the same time. I don't know how you fix that if you're the XFL. Yeah, I, I think I think it's live golf. I, I I think it just comes down to the money. They've got much more money that is backing them. And I, I just see the XFL, though it's been a success here in St. Louis, to your point, struggling to find a way to draw people to these big stadiums that they're playing in. Like, I think it's Arlington plays at the old Texas Rangers ballpark. I mean, that place can hold like 40,000 people, and they're probably selling like maybe 2,000 tickets. So... I, I think it's going to be live golf just because of the money that they have backing them. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers from the 618. Guys, the XFL needs to go to NFL or non-NFL CDs. I think that's the first thing that they should do. Uh, I think so, but like Seattle's done pretty well, hasn't it? Isn't that a they've market done, that they've is, done I mean, relative. Fine. 
they've done fine compared to like what the rest are. I, I do think there is something to that point though. I, I do think mm-hmm. when you look at the XFL, the reason like, I don't know if you'd call minor league baseball a success, it does well, but I, I don't know how well you would call it a success. But the reason it does well is because they're in all these different places that can, uh, that are close to major league cities, but they don't have a baseball team. Like look at uh, Memphis, for example, the Memphis Redbirds do really well for themselves. It's a pretty big city for triple a baseball, and they've got the connection to the St. Louis Cardinals. A lot of those teams are that way. The XFL, you're plopping in basically minor league football into cities where you've already got teams outside of St. Louis. And, And I think that pulls away because in Memphis, your baseball team is the Memphis Redbirds. You may be a Cardinals fan, but the team you can see is the Memphis Redbirds. If I'm living in Seattle, I can see the Seattle Seahawks. So why would I want to go see the Seattle, what are they, Sea Dragons? Why would I? Maybe you love football that much, but I think the common fan would go, I'd rather watch the pro team than the XFL team and spend my money on them. That's why putting an XFL team in Vegas was the dumbest idea ever. What do you, you mean? You already have the Raiders. You have the Golden Knights. They're they're all about getting a a, a basketball team there and a uh, um, a baseball team there. Like bringing the XFL to Vegas was not going to be a lucrative idea. It's been a massive failure so far. Um, another one from the three one four guys. I saw earlier today that it looks like Illinois is lo- losing another player to the transfer portal. This one in Jaden Epps. T Bone. I know you mentioned this to us off air. Uh, Epps was a freshman last year, averaged about 10 points, started 11 games for the Illini. He was a big-time kid, and now you're uh, sky left in midseason. Epps is leaving now. That's basically his recruiting class from last year. T-Bone, how are you feeling about Illinois basketball right now? Not too good, if we're being uh, honest here. Jaden Epps was like their best player for stretches of the season, and I'm actually shocked he transferred because – if there was one player Brad Underwood glowed about all season long, it was Jaden Epps saying he could be one of the best players in the Big Ten. So, like, to see that Epps is entering the transfer portal is a little surprising to me. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter, that's two of the top three guys that came in that big recruiting class. So we had the conversation yesterday. Is this kind of the new way of college basketball? And can you still build through recruiting? Well, Brad Underwood's finding out probably not because he's lost two of the three guys. This is a big loss for the Illini if he ends up transferring out. Um. I'm going to ask this and don't have any judgment here. I'm, I'm genuinely asking. Is the seat getting hot at all for Brad Underwood? I don't think so. Like warm? I I don't think warm? so. I, I think it would have to be another disappointing year before his seat heats up. I, I think where Brad Underwood will win is, is after the tournament. He has historically been good at entering the transfer portal. I mean, he brought in their best players last year. Danger, who's staying for the year. He brought in Byers and... Uh, Shannon. Shannon, thank you. I forgot his name for a second. Um, so I, I think he's going to do well in the transfer portal. I do think the seat will start to warm, though, if they have another disappointing year, because I do think the boosters and the AD at Illinois were very disappointed in how this season turned out. 20-plus wins in four consecutive seasons. He's gotten the program back on track. They are legitimate every year right now, top 30 program in the country. I'm with you. I do not think that it, he is currently in any risk of like losing his job by any stretch. But if you have one more season, and especially if the vibes around the program are bad again, that's where I start to wonder um, what what things look like. And we're starting to see some coaches finally uh, in the pipeline. I think it's kind of reset where you've got mid-major programs that are starting to develop again, and you've got coaches that potentially could come from them, specifically looking at FAU like, 
I don't know that there's going to be a job that he takes this offseason, so he maybe is somebody that could become available next year or the year after. Um, there's there's some good coaches that are now starting to rise through the ranks. Something worth keeping an eye on. One other piece of news from the transfer portal. Uh, Missouri forward Muhammad Diara just entered it as well. I actually liked the way he developed this year. By the end of the season, he was somebody that I thought was helping them. But all of the rumors, reports, whatever you want to look, speculation suggests that Mizzou is highly interested in former TCU forward Eddie Lampkin. He's a very talented basketball player, and he's big and adds some size that Missouri is desperately needing. And Missouri is really tight with um, scholarships right now. So I maybe this ends up working out well for both sides. I do think DR is going to have some opportunities to go elsewhere if he decides to. Um, but that's the bit of news from Mizzou as well. Coming up next, we continue our countdown of the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2023 season with number one on our list. I think you all are going to be shocked by who it is. And I want to discuss how this player plays into the Cardinals pitching plan, specifically because of what each of the NL representatives in the World Series had as their number one starter going into that World Series over the past decade. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And now, the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2023 season on PK and Ferrario. Number one, Jack Flaherty. When you can match up a one versus a one in October, you, you, you feel like you have a better chance of winning, right? And I do think like if Jack can emerge to be that type of pitcher that that, that gets that type of start and can be that type of, of, of arm, yeah, it definitely changes the outlook of our year. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Huge shock. Number one on the list of the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2023 season is Jack Flaherty. He was at number one on my list. He was at number one on Tanner's list. He was all the way down to number four on Alex Ferrario's list. I think the concerns that we have about Jack Flaherty coming out of the spring are the reasons why he was at number one on my list. This team needs a number one starter. It's been a while since they've really had that. Uh, honestly, I think you can make an argument that when it comes to swing and miss stuff, going up against number one starters for the opposition in the postseason, the last time they really had this guy was Jack Flaherty in 2019. That was the last time that the Cardinals finished a season with one of their starters throwing at least 25 games, so starting 25 games and having a sub three ERA. It was 2019 with Jack Flaherty. Before that, 2018 with Miles Michaelis. Before that, you got to go all the way back to 2015 with John Lackey. They're missing that number one starter. Flaherty can be that, as you just heard from John Mosellock. Alex, when you think about the best case scenario, you're shooting for the moon with Jack Flaherty. What does that look like for you? I, I mean, it seems dumb to say but 2019 Jack Flaherty because you need somebody who's in the Cy Young conversation and if you don't get that you're you're going to be in a bad spot once again going down the stretch of the regular season you're going to be asking for multiple guys to fill that void left by Jack Flaherty like you had to do last season they did it admirably last year but I don't know how many years in a row you can do that so best case scenario for Jack Flaherty is I'm looking at a sub three ERA I'm looking at somebody who can give you 196 might be pushing it but 175 180 innings pitched but I'm looking at somebody who's going to be on the mound for you every fifth day yeah, I, I think it's either 2019 or when when he started 2021 before he got hurt. Because yep. before he got hurt, 
He was in 62 innings pitch. He was 9-2, and two, and he was holding opponents to a 196 batting average and a 2.9 ERA. Like, he was awesome before he got injured. So I think that's the best-case scenario for him is he is healthy, and he's getting that swing and miss stuff, and he can be the workhorse of a rotation. It just depends on his health. We have seen it. When he is healthy, he's got the right stuff. The fastball, the slider, it's a great combination that he's able to use. That's the best-case scenario, and he's that guy that you can look at and go, holy bleep, we got to face Jack Flaherty today. Yep, I think 2021 is what I would look at. Um, He was on pace that year. Even if you include after he came back hurt, he wasn't totally himself, but he's still a good pitcher nonetheless. Started 15 games for the Cardinals, about 80 innings. So you just double that, 30 starts, 160 innings or so with a 3.2 ERA. You know how quickly I would sign up for that this year, guys, with a more than a batter uh, per inning in terms of the strikeout rate. That's the guy that this team has been missing. You got to have somebody that has that swing and miss stuff at the front end of your rotation that has the potential to have a 3-2-3-3 ERA or better. The problem is the downside is quite bad. We've seen what it looks like so far in the spring. We saw what it looked like last year, even after he was able to get back onto the mound. The swing and miss stuff wasn't there to the same degree. The velocity was hit and miss at best. If he's not going to be that front end starter and he looks more like he did last year and he's like a high threes, low four ERA and gives you like five to six innings per start. That's where I think things go awry for the Cardinals. That's where you are looking to Miles Michaelis to be that number one again. And while he has had his moments of looking like a front end starter, he's not an ace, man. I don't think you can be an ace without swing and miss stuff with the game, the way that the game is played right now. So the downside for Jack Flaherty is absolutely there. And that's not even including the injury risk. That's just talking about what he is at times over the last few seasons when he's been on the field. Yeah, that's my worst case scenario for a Jack Flaherty is you have to have two guys fill the void that you were expecting from Jack Flaherty. And you don't want to bring injury risk into this, but I mean, in terms of how he pitches, it's not like he's a high walk type of pitcher. It's not like, although we've seen this in spring training, that he gets hit around a lot. It's pretty consistent when he's on the mound. And the only thing you can look at with Jack Flaherty is worst case scenario. He's not on the mound for you this season. And I guess to add on to it, he's not on the mound for you in the most important steps of the season. Just like Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, where worst case scenario, they're not performing for you when you absolutely need them. That's what it looks like with Jack Flaherty. If he gets injured in the middle of the season for a month or two, okay, so be it. Somebody's going to go through that at some time. But if he's not there for you in August, in September, in October, welcome to worst case scenario. Yeah, I, I think the worst case scenario is you just kind of see what you've seen in spring training where that crispness is not there. It doesn't really have command of the fastball. The off speed is just kind of blah and he's getting hit around and he doesn't have the swing and miss stuff. And when I say that's the worst case scenario, I mean that takes you from a team and we talked to Jesse Rogers yesterday and he basically said that. I think he said it perfectly. Cardinals are a good team if Jack Flaherty's not an ace. They're not a great team, though, if Jack can't get back to form. And I I think that's true. I think there's that much on Jack's shoulders for this season. And and I think right now, I I think he's healthy. I I think if he had a shoulder issue, he'd be on the IL right now. Agreed. I think it's just a lack of confidence right now, whether it is he just feels like he still has to overcompensate for the shoulder that he's been dealing with, or he just doesn't have a good feel for his pitches. He has to get that turned around because the worst case scenario is you're talking about a team that doesn't have that ace and they have to give up serious capital to go get one at the trade deadline or in the offseason. All right, so number one, 
on our list of the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2023 season. No surprise for, I think, the seventh consecutive season. Don't check my math on that. It is Jack Flaherty. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kiley. Guys, I did a little research during the last couple of breaks because we had a conversation about the Cardinals starting pitching and what the offense needs to be in order to make up for their lack of a legitimate number one and their inability to really be in that top 10 uh, starting pitching wise. I wanted to go back through all of the National League representatives in the World Series over the last decade. So the teams that won the pennant in the NL over the last decade to see, okay, what what did their number one or number two starter look like? Because, Alex, you mentioned, and it's a fair point, Miles Michaelis has pitched at times like a legitimate number one over the last couple of seasons. He he did so in 2018, and he did so again last year to a, a really high degree. But when I look through these teams that we've got on this list, man, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I don't see how the Cardinals match up with this unless Jack Flaherty is that number one because they need Michaelis to be that number two for him. You guys tell me we can go through this relatively quickly. Do the Cardinals match up with these teams and these top two front end starters if Jack isn't a number one? Just simple yes or no, okay? Last year, the Phillies, Nola had a 3-2 ERA. Wheeler had a 2.8 ERA. No. No. 2021, the Braves. Freed was 3-0, Morton 3-3. No. Uh, again, assuming Jack is not the number one starter that we're hoping he becomes. I think you've got someone that can compete with the Charlie Morton. Yeah. I don't know if you have the Freed, though. It, but if Michaelis is at his best, I think Michaelis could compete with that. And, and Montgomery is the one that I'm I'm just uncertain with. So I would say maybe. I don't think that you do. I don't think you have anybody that can be that Max Freed uh, for your front end of the rotation starter. 2020 is the outlier here. It's such a small sample size. It's hard to do. Um, Bueller was their number one starter. Urias is number two. Neither of them were below a 3-0 ERA, but they were at 3-3 and 3-4, and they made 10 starts that season. I don't think you have anybody talent-wise if you end up going through without Jack being that number one. That can be either Bueller or Urias. Are you guys in agreement Mm -hmm. there? Uh, 2019 Nationals. We don't even have to go too far into this. Scherzer 2-9, Strasburg 3-3. No. <laughs> uh, 2018 Dodgers, Kershaw. This is while he's in his prime. 270 RA, Bueller 260 RA. No. No. Dodgers, 2017 again. Kershaw, 2.3 ERA. Oh and then gosh. they had you Darvish at a 3.5 ERA. Yeah, no. Nope. Uh, 2016, you had Lester and Arietta. This is Arietta while he was dominating for the Cubs. Lester had a 2.4 ERA. Arietta had a 3.1 ERA. No. Mm-mm. 2015, the Mets. DeGrom and Harvey. Harvey had a 270 RA that, that year. That was while he was still the Dark Knight of New York. DeGrom had a 25. Yeah, that yeah, changed no. fast for Matt uh, Harvey. 2014, Giants. Madison Bumgardner at a 2.9 ERA had one of the most dominant postseasons I've ever seen in my life. And then Tim Hudson was their number two starter. You can match up with that number two. Yeah. This team have Mad Bum, Mad Bum going for you? I don't even think Jack Flaherty could be Mad Bum. 2013 Cardinals. Wayno 2-9. Waka 2-8. You could throw whoever you want to in the mix as that number two starter that year. Lance Land was in there as well. They were all like sub 3-4 ERAs. You don't have that. This is my thing on the Jack Flaherty side of things. Even if you are the biggest Miles Michaelis fan in the world, man, that dude cannot compare to those number one starters. Doesn't have the swing and miss stuff. And what he can do is maybe some of those number twos, and I think even then you're stretching it a little bit, but maybe you could have him going up against Morton and say, I'll take that head-to-head, and I like our chances because of the offense. Maybe you look at him compared to Arietta or Darvish in 2016, 2017, and say, ah, I think I could do that. Or Hudson in 2014 and say, ah, we got that. 
I think the guys that are number two starters for all of the contenders this year are better than what I just mentioned. But okay, cool. We can at least come to a discussion about that. That number one starter, every single team in the National League that made the World Series over the last decade that played an entire season had at least one starter at a 3-0 ERA or below. The only guy on this roster that has that capability, in my opinion, is Jack Flaherty, and it's why he was at number one for me. Yeah, I, I agree. The only guy that can do that for the Cardinals would be Jack Flaherty. I, I think in like spurts, you could see a Cardinal starter throw out a solid like ace-type outing, like seven innings with strikeout ball and no earned runs. But that's only probably like once in every like 10 to 15 starts from one of these guys. So that's where it just changes everything for the St. Louis Cardinals is if Jack goes down, they don't have that guy. I, I think Michaelis or Matt or Montgomery, whoever ends up having the better year of those three, can match up with some of these two. Like that you Darvish won 3-5 ERA. I, Michaelis could do that. Montgomery could do that. Hell, I think Steven Matz could do that. Agreed. They just don't have anybody that can consistently put up those ace numbers. I, I could see where, like— I would also add that the current number two starters in the National League are better than uh, Agreed. That. But, but I, to I, your point, it's fair. I, I do think, like, if you came down to a playoff—maybe not playoff series, but if you needed someone to take the ball as the number one, say Matt has a really good year, could he get the swing and miss stuff to where he could do it for a game? Yeah, but would you rely on him to do it for a 10-15 to 15 start stretch? No, and and that's the difference. The Cardinals just don't have that true number one if Jack's not the guy. You've seen a clutch guy, and that's been the biggest thing that you're missing. And as much as you want those, if you look at it, if you have a rotation that can pitch well to where you're able to utilize three, maybe four guys in a series, a best of seven series, you're going to be relying on one guy to get you two wins, maybe two guys to get you two wins. And I don't think you have a... I mean, in all in all honesty, Jack Flaherty hasn't shown you the capability since a short portion of 2021, but 2019 to be able to match up with those pitchers. So you might be saying we need to get somebody, even if Jack Flaherty pitches well at the trade deadline. But if Jack, if Jack is good this year, I'm fine with him being my number one. I think Jack can, at his best, match up with any of those guys that I just mentioned for the most part. Like he's not, he's not Max Scherzer, but you can match him up against these guys at his best, and I'm fine with it. And I'm probably at that point would be okay with one of the number two starters, whoever ends up developing to becoming that for the Cardinals this year, going up against those other guys that I mentioned. But when you take him out of the equation, if he's not performing well, everything else has to be bumped up a step. And that's where things just completely fall flat for this team. And it's how you end up in the same situation that you've been in over the past really five years now, basically since 2015, And that's just, it's not good enough. It's not good enough when you go up against the best that the National League has to offer as represented by all of those other rotations that ended up making it to the World Series over the last decade. Coming up next, are we seeing the beginning of the end already of the Pavel Buchnevich at Center Project? We'll talk about it next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Thomas and Buchnevich, then you have Kairu and Kapnan, and let's say you have Saad and Verana, then you then you have Jake and you have Schenner. Gives them some options. I, I would say before last night's game, I was dead set on it being a center. Now I'm not quite as, as uh, saying it has to be, but I think we're going to be looking ideally at a centerman, but I think that if we have to get creative, we can. That was Doug Armstrong the day after, really the day of the trade deadline alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Doug Armstrong was asked about the top nine forwards and whether or not he needs to add a center, if that's specifically what they're looking at. 
And it really depends on what they see out of Pavel Buchnevich at that spot down the stretch. Alex, he has now played, in terms of a full game, 10 games at center for the St. Louis Blues. The first one was amazing. I mean, it was one of the better games that we've seen from Pavel Buchnevich this season. Finished 9 for 15 on the faceoff dot, won 60% of those draws, and played about 19 minutes in that game. Since then, things have not quite gone as well. He is winning 34% of his faceoffs since uh, that game against San Jose. And the only players that have taken at least 100 faceoffs that are even remotely close to that win rate of Pavel Buchnevich, again, he's at 34%, are Noah Cates, Barkley Goudreau, Nathan McKinnon, and Nils Amon. I apologize for the pronunciation on that one. Two of those guys are rookies. One of them is Nathan McKinnon, and then you've got Pavel Buchnevich in that group. Alex, can you have a center that is performing like this on the dot? Can you continue to put next year Pavel Buchnevich as a full-time centerman, in your opinion? You can have a centerman do that at the dot. You can't have three centermen do that at the dot. And that's the problem for the Blues right now is Thomas is really floated around 45% all season long. He's had some games that were good, some games that were bad. Braden Shen has been around 40% and that's fine, but then you've got another guy who's 34%. You got to have somebody who's winning faceoffs for you. And right now Pavel Buchnevich hasn't been doing that and it's not all on him, but when you look at the circumstances that the Blues are in of needing to take face-offs in the defensive zone and win it to get it out of the zone faster. Or if you're looking at guys taking face-offs at the penalty kill and not winning those. Perfect example was that LA Kings game on Sunday night. You're not winning face-offs. It's a face-off win, a shot, and then a goal on the power play. You're going to have to get a centerman who can win you face-offs and throw out there in crucial crucial situations. So as much as I enjoy watching Buchnevich play center because he is a really good distributor, uh, your best option if Doug Armstrong is to find a centerman in the offseason who can be a face-off winner for you and play in your top nine, kind of what Noel Achari was. I don't think you can have Shin and Buchnevich as centers next year. Not going into the season. Now, if you eventually have to play Buch at the center position in a pinch, I think he's fine. He he can do that for you. He, he's proven that he's capable of doing it. Going into the season with that as your your specific plan, though, seems super risky to me. I don't think you can go into it with a guy that's winning 34% of the faceoffs. Now, if you didn't have Shin as well, who's winning about 40% of his faceoffs in this stretch of games, and he's been uh, below average on the season as well, uh, Maybe you could make it work like you could have one of them on the wing, the other at center, and you've just got two guys maybe even on the same line that can that can make it work. But I don't think you can have both. And so going into next year, I think the overwhelming likelihood is the Blues at a third line center that is defensive minded that can play that spot. I view Buchnevich at center kind of like I look at Brendan Donovan as the Cardinals shortstop. If you have a 10 day IL stint for Tommy Edmond and you expect him to be right back in the lineup afterwards. I think you can make it 10 days with Brendan Donovan at shortstop and some combination of guys that are going to play second base for you, depending on who's up at any given time, but mostly Nolan Gorman. I think you can make that work. I don't think you could go 60 days with Brendan Donovan as your shortstop in that scenario. That's where I think you have to bring up Mason Wynn. So your, your long-term plan there is Mason Wynn. And you certainly wouldn't have come into the season with Brendan Donovan as your starting shortstop. That would be a mistake. I kind of view it the same way with Buchnevich. Can he play center? Yes. Should he be your designated center going into the season? I think my answer on that would be no. 
Alex, this brings us to the offseason, which I think the free agent path that they're going to end up with is probably some kind of a center on a one-year deal. But it also makes me wonder in terms of like you look at the draft and what that ends up looking like. The Blues, as of today, are picking in the top 10. I wanted to look back last year at the, the teams that picked in the top 10 and where they're at right now. There were only two that picked in the top 10 last year that right now are performing at a level that would expect them to get into the postseason. It's the Seattle Kraken and the New Jersey Devils. And if you remember, we talked to Joey Vitale right around the time that the Blues ended up going up against the Devils about the Blues, the Devils, and how the Blues can follow that path. Here's what he said at the time. I always bring up the New Jersey Devils and talk to Tom Fitzgerald again last week when the Devils were in town. You know, it took Nico Heischer years, Jack Hughes years, not only to develop their offensive skills, but also realize that defensively they got to be much better as well. And now you're starting to see the fruits of all that labor that New Jersey has endured, where the New Jersey Devils are one of the funnest teams to watch in the National Hockey League. But it's taken those two young guys a lot of time, a lot of seasoning, and guess what? A lot of mistakes. The Devils have 100 points right now. They are second in the Metro, which is a very good division. It's a tough one to be in. The Kraken are in fourth in their division with 88 points so far this year. If they were in the Blues division, they would be between the Stars and the Jets. That's where they stand currently. Alex, when you look at those two teams, is there a path that you think that the Blues can take to get to where those two teams are at right now, where they were in the top 10 for one year and then, boom, the next year they're ready to go? I mean, it's probably more the Seattle Kraken than the New Jersey Devils because the Devils got to this point from being bad for multiple years where they selected Nico Heischer first overall. Uh, That was 2017, and then 2019 they select Jack Hughes overall, and then the next two years they select seventh and fourth and then second overall. So, like, it's it's been bad for about six, seven, eight years for the New Jersey Devils, and then now all of a sudden it's starting to click. Seattle Kraken, although it's an expansion team, Seattle Kraken did this in two years to where last year they were selecting in the top of the draft. And then this year you're in a wild card spot, five points out of the top three in the Pacific division. But the thing about that too, is I don't look at the Seattle Kraken the same way. I look at the New Jersey devils in terms of sustained postseason appearances. Seattle could be out of the playoffs next year because as well as they did, it is still just a jumble of players that are working really well together, where the New Jersey Devils are a fine-oiled machine of you put a lot of pieces, a lot of time into it, and you finally have clicked with this core. So if the Blues are going to turn it around quickly, it's going to be the path of Seattle Kraken. Of you get a really good pick this upcoming draft, you've got some pieces in place, but you make a push next year. But I would rather, and I don't want to be bad for the amount of time the New Jersey Devils are, that's why Doug Armstrong accredited the LA Kings with this, the Devils are the better way to go because you want sustained postseason appearances. You want to be a powerhouse in the playoffs for years to come rather than be a Seattle Kraken who might still be searching for more and more answers after this season. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I, I think you would rather be the Devils in terms of becoming that powerhouse and remaining there for a while. But as you said, that takes five, six years of being really bad to get the talent that they have. I, I agree with you. I think it's the cracking it would be the way that the Blues go about it. And the way they probably go about it is they get that centerman that you're talking about. They're probably able to reshape, reshape the uh, defensive core a little bit, probably not a whole lot. It's probably not going to be five new defensemen on the blue line next year. But you get a little bit of that change because their goaltending's not been good. We were looking at their goaltending oh, numbers. Martin Jones is their best goaltender. They don't have a goaltender with the same percentage above uh, 90. Whoa. So you, you look at that and you say, okay, 
the Blues don't have that right now. And again, I'm not blaming Jordan Bennington They're, for the Blues' struggles. Right. It's been the defense's fault that's well, led to some easy goals. And Seattle hasn't been suppressing shots either. They've been no. giving up a lot of scoring opportunities. They, they are, I think I just counted, eight, 17th or 18th in goals allowed. So they're kind of middle of the pack. And, and the reason that they're able to win, though, is they outscore their problems and they, they just maintain the puck. They are fifth in Corsi percentage so far this season. So that's how they're able to do it. Can the Blues quickly do that next season? Probably. I I don't think you can get into a shutdown defensive team like they were in 19 when they made that cup run, but you can kind of have some of the pieces remaining over. You ship out, maybe it's Tory Krug, for example, and then you just improve offensively by maintaining puck possession and outscoring some of your problems, and I think that would be the way that the Blues could just quickly, in one year, become what the Seattle Kraken are as well. And it would also come down to, too, what you saw last season, which is they would have to improve the power play, in my opinion. The power play was one of the biggest things for them last year, and it just hasn't been the same since. Yeah, I would say what you're hoping for is that you can become next year, or 2024-25 basically, so two years from now, what the Devils are right now. That that should be the goal for the Blues. I don't think next season's the year where you, you're able to get back on track. And the reason why I say that is because this past offseason – the Devils were able to go out and sign Andre Palat, who I, I know has missed a decent amount of games because of injuries this year, which is kind of what he does. But they also added John Marino, who was a young defenseman that we talked a lot about during the offseason. And he just didn't have a spot any longer because of the cap space and uh, the way that teams are built. They went out and acquired him. And then they added a few other players that are depth signings to, to improve the depth of the team. And they said, we're going for it. We're ready to go now. And then at the deadline, they added another core piece to the situation. That's where I hope that the Blues are not next year, this upcoming season, but the year after. So that they can make some significant, maybe a significant signing or two, maybe make a significant trade during that offseason to add to the core and really push it that next year. So I think that's where I'm hoping that they become. Um, But next year, I I would assume that the Blues are more likely to be one of the other eight teams that picks in the top 10 in consecutive drafts. You have an 80% chance based on last year. This is just a one-year sample. But to be back into the top 10 the following season, I think it's far more likely that the Blues are in that mix than it is that they are next year in the mix of the Kraken or the Devils. And then two years from now, they become the team that is like the Kraken or the Devils. Coming up next, we'll get to some NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Quick hitters with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. It seems like our long national nightmare, the Aaron Rodgers saga, could be soon coming to an end. Charles Robinson of Yahoo Sports reporting earlier today that they are getting closer to a compensation that makes sense for both sides when it comes to the draft pick compensation for Aaron Rodgers, the Green Bay Packers, and the New York Jets. According to his sources, the expected draft pick compensation will be two, quote, high draft picks expected to be one that is a second round pick this year and one that is a second round pick next year that in 2024 could become a first round pick if the Jets, for example, host a divisional round or go to the AFC championship game. Those types of things. They're tied to what the team does in New York this upcoming season. Another potential qualification that is put onto this pick, though, according to Charles Robinson, is whether or not Rodgers decides to play in 2024. The Jets were taken aback a bit, according to this report, 
by him saying he had a 90% chance or he was 90% likely to retire when he was going into the darkness this offseason. And then he came out and decided to return. So the Jets are like, ah, we don't really want to give up a first and a second round pick for a guy that's going to play for us for a year, which seems fair to me. Alex, what do you think about two second round picks in return for Aaron Rodgers? Yeah, and if I'm the Jets, that's probably too much if you do or you are concerned about only a one year but yeah I'm not giving up a first round pick for him and this is what we talked about in the past like feeling like the Jets have to do something I mean the Packers got to get what's best for them but the Jets also I mean they're stuck with Zach Wilson and you want Aaron Rodgers but man do you really want to mortgage the future for one year of potentially Aaron Rodgers coming there and yeah you know what you get one year of it you go to a Super Bowl great well worth it but what if you get bounced in the first round and you paid all of that for Aaron Rodgers, and then he goes into the darkness next offseason and says, I'm retiring. Like, two second rounds seem to be about as justifiable as you can ask for if I'm the Jets, knowing that I'm more than likely going to have one year of Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I I think two second-round picks seems fair. Now, I understand why Green Bay's saying we want a first-round pick in exchange for Aaron Rodgers. I mean, you're taking on a Hall of Fame quarterback that if he does end up playing two years and plays at a high level, you're becoming a potential Super Bowl contender. So I understand both sides of it. But if I'm the Jets, the only way you could attach a first-round pick, and honestly, even if you attach a second, second-round pick, is it does have to have kind of some clarifiers to it to where, hey, he's got to play for you guys to get this pick. Otherwise, otherwise, you're just wasting compensation. Yeah, I like it. I think two second-round picks seems totally reasonable. And if I'm the Jets, if you're good, especially if you end up going to, like, the AFC Championship game, that first-round pick next year, be in the 20s late 20s so you're talking about giving up a late 20s pick next year and a middle of the second round pick this year that's basically the the equivalent to like an early 20s first round pick next year that's fine i would give that up for aaron Rodgers. i would do that as somebody that is not a fan of aaron Rodgers because he makes you really good as much as I've got all my qualms with Aaron Rodgers, the likelihood is he probably takes them to the postseason this year, and they had no other real options this offseason unless they were going to be interested in um, going after Lamar Jackson, and we know no team is interested in going after Lamar He's Jackson. We don't have to rehash that right now. Uh, speaking of NFL news, yesterday, an odds book put out for the first time their over-unders, their win totals for 2023 in the NFL. Ooh, oh, baby. baby. Here we Time go. Some, some futures money. bets. If you had to pick one over, one under, your favorite over, your favorite under for this upcoming season with the win totals. Alex, what would you go with? Detroit Lions. As an over or an under? Over. I, I Nine and a half. They seem like a team that's going to really compete for winning that division and I think you could do that with 10 11 12 maybe wins so I would take the over on Detroit I think my favorite over and it's one of the top teams is Kansas City at 11 and a half like oh baby they're they win 11 games it feels like it would be disappointing especially because we know they're involved in the wide receiver market now look they may end up not getting anybody but they still got freaking Patrick Mahomes so them winning 11 games is gonna happen so that's my favorite over. My favorite under is probably Cleveland. I, I can't see nine and a half. That team stinks. Look, Deshaun Watson, bad. Like, they're not winning nine games. They're going to be below 500. We're going to hear conversations about Kevin Stefanski getting fired because it's apparently going to be his fault. I, I think I would take the heavy under on the Cleveland Browns and ram seven and a half. Yeah, all right. Just take the say, under on that one. I got two favorites on the unders, seven and a half on the Rams. And if Lamar Jackson's not playing, which I don't think he will be, I'd take the under on Baltimore winning eight and a half games. So 
I'm having a tough time with the overs. I think the overs are a little harder than the unders. I don't think that the Cardinals are winning more than three games next year. That's going to be one of the worst teams. Like, I think they have a chance to be worse than what the Texans have been over the last few seasons in terms of the overall That's talent. Tough. I'm serious. The overall talent that has been assembled on that Cardinals team. Guys, who are their, like, five best players on the roster right now? You get through, like, three, it gets real lean real quick. And it's there's a chance that we might not see Kyler this year. If they're, like, 2-10 and ten when he's ready to come back, there's no reason to put Kyler Murray out on the football field. If there's any chance whatsoever of him not being at 100%. So the Cardinals over under is set at five and a half. That is the lowest on the board. And I like the under in a significant way. Another one that I really like on the under is the Giants at eight and a half. I think the Giants have the rubber band effect to a high level of degree this year. You've got Daniel Jones playing at like $40 million this year. You're bringing back Saquon. You're basically bringing back the whole band that played for you last year. I don't think the results are going to be as good this time around as it was a year ago. If I'm going for an over, how do you guys feel about this one? The Atlanta Falcons at seven and a half. Here's why. I don't love the Falcons, but this past season, I think they showed that they are a well-coached football team and famous last words. Other than quarterback, I think they're actually really talented everywhere else on that roster. And you look at the division, the Bucks, the Panthers, the Saints, I don't trust any of those teams. You're playing them six times next year. I think the over seven and a half for the Falcons, I think they, they won seven last year. I think they could win eight or nine games this upcoming season, and that would not surprise me. So they fall into the same category in the way Alex reacted. thinks he's on the same page as me on this one uh, with Washington. Tour, in theory, yes, I like the roster and I like but the, the head difference coach. is the division. Oh, you're not banking I, on I, Sam Howell with I Washington? I get it, but it's... We just talked about how important a quarterback is and how tough it is to find it. Desmond Ritter's not good. Sam Howell's not good. And if you have a bad quarterback, your your defense is going to have a tough time making up for it. Even your offensive skill position is going to have a tough time making up for it. Actually, Atlanta's got a good offensive I, line either, dude. I, 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 take the under, year, yeah. I take the, one of the better ones heavy the under on I Atlanta and Washington under. because if there are teams that are coming out and saying, oh, we trust Desmond Ritter. Oh, Sam Howell, he's going to be so good. Yeah, in other words, what they did was I can translate for you as Google Translate. They're tanking for Caleb See, Williams. I, I disagree. I, first of all, I don't think that the Falcons are capable of tanking. They're not bad enough. Um I think they're going to win with their running game and defense. And I am a guy that hates that. Like, I will not watch very many Falcons games next year because I hate watching that style of football. But they last year won seven games with Tyler Algier running for a thousand yards behind a quality offensive line. Alex, I disagree that they're bad. I think they're pretty damn good. Drake London was a really good rookie wide receiver for them. And Kyle Pitts wasn't healthy all season long. I think they have a chance to win nine maybe even 10 games they could right. be next year's giants Let, let's let's put some let's put some all right i don't know uh, they are for I'm me next year on on that. they are for me next year what the jaguars were for me this year which is i don't know how good they're actually going to be but because of the divisions somebody has to come out of it and i think the falcons are, have a really good chance are I think you the willing Panthers to pair them and washington together on the no, over because i don't like that I, I, don't, I think that the east is really good i think the panthers and the saints are going to have a better quarterback than the Atlanta Falcons. I don't even know who the Panthers are taking. <laughs> so I don't know how that, I, can I say still it's think be they'll better. be better I, than Desmond Ritter. Uh, I don't know. Who's, I, he, who's he throwing to? Adam Thielen? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Final thing here as we go through some NFL quick hitters. Uh, guys, I've got some weird vibes about the Buffalo Bills going into this season. I don't know if you heard what Sean McDermott had to say yesterday, but the NFL owners' meetings are taking place, the ho- head coaches are all there. Here's what McDermott had to say about Josh Allen's playing style. 
I don't think that that's a healthy way to play quarterback in this league. It's really undefeated that things are going to happen when you play that, that style, that brand of football. And so we've got to get that adjusted. It's never going to go completely away, but it has to get to where it's workable. I don't want to take his, his personality away from him as far as that goes, his signature, but there needs to be an adjustment in that style of play. Josh Allen last year ran for 760 yards and seven touchdowns. He was a battering ram for them at times in short yardage situations. Here's the reason why I disagree with that. If you have Josh Allen, one of the main selling points is, holy cow, this guy's 6'5", 240 pounds, and he runs really well. It's like a running back. If you're not going to utilize that aspect of his game, then all you have is a relatively poor passing percentage in terms of his completion rate not a great accuracy guy pretty good throwing quarterback that's huge and moves around really well in the pocket if you neuter his ability to win with his legs i think you are actually actively making your team worse i understand completely where he's coming from where you want to keep josh allen healthy but the injury that he had last year was a freak injury with his elbow nobody could have seen that coming and i don't think it's because necessarily his playing style I think taking away his legs is a horrible decision. I think there's some weird vibes going on right now with the Buffalo Bills. I'm not feeling great about what their season is going to look like in 2023. I still think they're going to be good. I think they could end up taking another step back, though, and winning like 10 or 11 games this upcoming season and being the third or fourth best team in the AFC. It's kind of why I felt like they should have found a way to get some type of quality running back to play for the team because as much as they relied on multiple guys last year, I mean, you still were going to Josh Allen first, where if you had a at least reliable running game, maybe you wouldn't have to sit in this position that they're in right now. I I agree with you, BK. I, I don't think they should be taking out the running game from Josh Allen. And look, I understand there is adherent risk by putting him in more danger by running the football with him. But I, I think we had the conversation. I can't remember when it was, but at some point we had a conversation about can you win with a pocket passer in the league anymore? And I think the answer is no. And to your point, if you're going to put him more in the pocket, as we've seen, Josh Allen is carefree with the football and turns the football over quite a bit still, even though he is now a veteran. So I I think the best thing for them is to utilize his legs. Now, I I do think maybe you cut back on that in the first half of the season to try and keep him fresher once you get to that playoff push and once you get to the playoffs. But I I don't agree with Sean McDermott there in terms of, yeah, we need to get him more in the pocket. We don't need to be running more. I No, I think think you make your offense more of a threat by having him utilize his legs. That's Tanner Hendrickson. Excuse me. Tough for me to say. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, we're hit the uh, juncture here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trust wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. T-Bone, I know this story isn't about Alex, but I feel like this story could be about Alex in 30 years. The reason why I say that is because a missing plumber has sparked a rescue in Los Angeles and didn't know where he was. He was on a job and they went into the house and they said, all right, we got to find this guy. He's 50 years old. He did not return for three hours. So his the homeowner called for help. 
Like, hey, we don't know where this guy went. He came, he was helping us out, and he's gone. He's disappeared from us. So the firemen came. The fire trucks were outside. They're ready to go. I don't know if I need a sound effect. I know what a fire truck is, but I'll continue. The home, which was built in 1958, had a three-foot-high crawl space beneath it. Firefighters went down there, saw the gentleman. He was sleeping. My man just wanted to take a nap. My man was tired. I don't know, 30 years for hours. This might be like later on this month. The nap, maybe, but... I've got three hours. I'm going to go to sleep. The nap, maybe, but if you guys ever been in a crawl space... Uh, not a good spot to take a nap. Oh. Imagine how tired you've got to be to be like, you know what? This I'm is just, it right I, here. I'm just going to go ahead and use this three foot space. Bet- basically from Tanner, the front of your head, the, the, the top of your head to the top of that is like a foot. Maybe like this much. I'm just going to go ahead and sleep right here. This is it. I don't want to move. I am done with everything for the next three hours. Look, man, my entire college career, in between classes, I would find my car, go park somewhere. I would lounge the seat back and fall asleep in my car. You've that been makes the same, sense. You've been the same since college? Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. You haven't A changed. A decade of sleeping yeah. in the car. Well, when you're when you're on the move 24-7, you find your opportunities to fall asleep. But On the move 24-7? Yeah, what are you talking what are you about? talking about? You were in college. Yeah, it was classes from start to finish and then broadcasting from t- to like 11 o'clock at yeah, night. Yeah, I did that. I did Yo, not need naps all, all the time. we college. Let's not be ridiculous about the amount of stuff that was on our plate in college. Just because I went to a JUCO <laughs> school. Okay, no, that's actually kind of weird. Mine wasn't that stressful. But no, I you said three, three or 30 years from now. I could totally see Alex doing this like... Later on, the, Alex is Today, the yeah. <laughs> Alex is the guy that I see like uh, his wife Katie saying to him, "And you were in the bathroom for a really long time." Oh, I was just taking a nap while I was on the toilet. He would have the water running yeah. while he's in there. <laughs> it's impossible yeah. to take a nap on the toilet. Or like Katie can't find him, and I just picture her like, "Man, where'd Alex go?" And she like pulls open the shower curtain. He's just like snoozing in the tub. I feel like he's. I don't know if you have a carport, Alex, but I have a carport at my house. I feel like Alex is the one that just like has that little space between the car and the house inside of the carport and he's just like cuddling up next to it just brings a pillow out there brings a blanket ready to go we don't we don't need anything more coming up in about 15 minutes or so we'll play a game of better to forget it 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line if you guys have a scenario we'll tell you if we are betting it or forgetting it but coming up next we've got a question for you guys Want to hear from you on the text line. I put this out on, on um, a poll as well on Twitter at BK Sports Talk. Which of these two young Cardinals players will put together a better offensive season this year? Nolan Gorman or Jordan Walker? We'll give you our answers coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. One one pitch in the air out to deep center field. Nolan Gorman, a long home run to center, his fifth of the season. And boy, when he hits him, he hits him. Wow, that is big time power to center off the bat of the rookie. 
That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. Nolan Gorman put together quietly a pretty productive rookie season for the Cardinals. And alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. The hope is that he can even better that in 2023. If you look at any of the projection systems, they they think it's going to be kind of more of the same. They think that he's going to be a home run first guy. A little bit of on base, but really more of a it's all about the power. If you get the 30 plus home runs, you'll deal with everything else that comes along with it. If that's what you're hoping for Jordan Walker. Meanwhile, the projections don't really know what to do with him. This is a guy that has not played above double a yet, but when he was in double a, he was just absolutely crushing the baseball. And we all saw what he did the first couple of weeks of the spring. So, Alex, this brings us to the question, which player is going to have the better offensive season for the Cardinals this year? I think long term, we're all in agreement. The better player is Jordan Walker, both offensive and all around. But for this season, who do you expect to have the better season? I put this out on Twitter. There were more than 1,400 votes. 53% of the audience, I was actually pleasantly surprised by this, said Nolan Gorman will have the better season offensively for this upcoming year. Alex, which side are you on for that? Gorman, Walker, who's going to have the better year this year offensively? I'm on the Gorman side because Gorman's gone through one Major League Baseball season and he has realized how difficult it is and now he changes his uh, ability to adapt to the major leagues, whereas Jordan Walker is going to have to figure that out. When you enter the league as a rookie, yeah, you can dominate. and We've seen guys do it. I mean, Julio Rodriguez just did this last year with Seattle, but there are going to be trials and tribulations, especially if you're Jordan Walker on a team that has so much talent on it and you're trying to to fill in and fit in. Uh, Nolan Gorman's gone through it, and now Nolan Gorman has the, the assets to go into this season. So I would say a more productive season this year offensively is going to be Nolan Gorman. I think I'm in agreement there. I, I, I think it will be Nolan Gorman. I think this spring you've seen him make the adjustment, and, and there was an article in the paper today talking about it, to where he has found a way to, and we'll see if it translates in the regular season, but so far to lay off that high fastball with Velo that was killing him last year. That was the one spot you could always get Nolan Gorman to swing and miss, was just throw that fastball up there. He was going to chase, and it's an easy way to get him out or roll on top of a pitch. I, I, I think he's made that adjustment. He looks better at the plate, and, and he's made the correct adjustments to where, I think to Alex's point, after that first kind of season for Nolan Gorman, He's been able to kind of get a feel for what it's like at Major League Life, make the adjustment, and I, I think you're going to see a really big year for him. I think he's going to be a guy that the Cardinals are going to have a tough time taking him out of the lineup. I think they're going to find multiple ways to get him in, play third base, play second base, be the DH. I, I think he's going to have a big year, and that's not saying Jordan Walker is going to have a bad year. I do think you're going to see ups and downs for Walker. I think it could be similar to what Gorman's year was last year to where there's spurts where you're like, whoa, I can see the tools like we saw early in spring. And then there's going to be kind of the spurts like we saw at the end of spring where it's like, oh, man, four for his last 30. He's really going through some struggles right now. Yeah, I would definitely go Nolan Gorman on this because of the power. The power is something that's going to play every day. And we know with um, Ollie Marmel, that's something that he's going to put into the lineup as often as he possibly can, man. He wants that punch, especially coming from the bottom of the lineup. And I'm not trying to suggest that Walker doesn't have that. I don't think it's quite the same as Nolan Gorman, though. Not yet. I do think he'll get there. I think he's a guy that could at some point in his career hit 25 to 30 plus home runs. But right now, Nolan Gorman projects today to be a 30 home run hitter this season. And so when you look at what he did a year ago, he hit 192 against fastballs. He hit 265 against breaking pitching pitches rather, and 275 against off-speed pitches. Man, if he just becomes an okay hitter against fastballs, doesn't have to be great against them, but is okay, 
suddenly we're talking about a player that could be a 250 type of a hitter gets on base 32, 33% of the time and mashes 30 home runs over the course of the season. Dude at second base slash DH, that's a borderline all-star caliber player. And I'm not telling you that he's going to be that this season. Like he's, I'm not predicting Nolan Gorman to be an all-star, but the production that you get out of him could put him into those kinds of conversations. So for me, it's not hard to see how this works out for Nolan Gorman. I'm excited about Walker. I love the projection of what Walker could be. I've said all along, though, I am cautiously pessimistic on what the production will be right away. I do think there's going to be a lot of stretches where we say, whew, is it time to maybe get Walker some time down in AAA? My guess, my hope, my belief is that they're going to stick with him. He's going to be here for the long haul, and they're just going to ride this thing out because they have players that can make up for his lack of production at times from the bottom of the lineup, so long as he's still there mentally. Gorman had his up and down season, as you mentioned, Alex, last year. I think this is the year that he really takes off and gives you 30 plus bombs. I, I could also see this year be a struggle for Nolan Gorman, too, to where you think you've got it figured out and then you also go back, drop down to it. There is those opportunities. The power is interesting, though, because Jordan Walker's got that power, too. And I don't know. No, I know Nolan Gorman's projects to be better. But Jordan Walker, I mean, we saw that his power was the reason he he at least was at the top of the Cardinals minds when it comes to creating that opening day roster. So I could see Jordan Walker make it competitive as he, if he's able to adapt to that first rookie season at the majors. I, I wonder if Walker's power is going to be more doubles than home runs this year, at least early on as he kind of matures into that power stroke that would be my of his. Guess. Cause I, I think that's the way he's going to go. When I, when I look at Nolan Gorman, I, I think he could put up similar numbers to what he did throughout his minor league career, where he hit, I don't know if he'll hit 270, that's when he ended up hitting in the minors. I think he'd be like 250, 260, get on base around a 340 clip and slug right around 500. Like, I, I truly think that could be what you see in the second year for Nolan Gorman because of the adjustments that we're seeing. And it's not like in the minor leagues, yes, he hit for power, but as I just said, he hit for a decent average too. I don't think that just disappears out of Nolan Gorman's game. I think he does have some pretty good bat-to-ball skills, and it also matches with that pure power stroke that he has. So I, I would not be shocked if he's a guy that could put up, I think I said it yesterday, an 800 OPS and slug close to 500 and get on base around a 330, 340 clip. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me, actually, that the thing that makes me most confident about Nolan Gorman adjusting this year to the big league level was his walk rate, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but it makes me feel even better about him. Like, I don't think that he's going to have a bad. I, I don't think there's a scenario in my mind where he's just bad this year because the power and the on base. And I know it's not going to be like a 400. You're not expecting him to be Brendan Donovan. He's not going to be Lars Newpar. He doesn't have that kind of discipline. But it's better than I gave it credit for when he first got up to the big league level. You look at what he did in the minors. He, he always walked a little bit. And then it is something that so far in spring, it's a small sample size, but in the spring that has concerned me a bit about Jordan Walker, he doesn't really take his walks very often. He's a guy that is a little bit more of a free swinger in the mold of like an Alec Burleson. And that got Burleson into some trouble last year at the end of the season. Again, very small sample size for him too, but when you are that free swinger and you're not getting the the look on the batted balls, suddenly you're looking up and you're saying, man, I feel like I'm hitting the ball really well right now. And not only is my batting average at 200, but my on-base percentage is at 240. That sucks, dude. As a player, when you look up and you're not able to get on base because you don't have that like flotation device, I guess, if you will, to keep you at sea level, that's hard. And it can end up crushing you. I think Walker mentally appears to be very strong, so he'll be able to make it through some of those slumps. But Nolan Gorman walking as he did last year 9% of the time 
even if he's batting 200 over the course of the month, his on-base percentage is still going to be approaching 300. And that's a really good sign for long-term sustained success for him. Something that gives me a lot of faith that he's going to be able to make this thing, uh, not just the adjustment to the big league pitching, but also sustain it over the course of time. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line. Better to forget it. Coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up and we're here to make the call. It's PK and Ferrario's bet it or forget it on 101 ESPN. Three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service X line for better to forget it, guys. Let's start with this one. This one is from me. Mason Wynn will make his major league debut before the MLB All Star break. Better to forget it. I'll forget this one. I don't think he makes his major league debut until after the season or, or until after the All Star break, barring injury. I think I'm going to forget it, too, because I don't want to bet on injuries. And I think the only way he's up here is if Tommy Edmond gets hurt or maybe Brendan Donovan. You can shift Tommy Edmond over there. But Corbin's played so well, so maybe he wouldn't have to. I, I'm going to forget this. I, I, I think the best case scenario is he spends most, if not all, of the season in AAA until the offseason when he could potentially ship somebody out to create room for him for 2024. Is there any scenario where he hits his way onto the major league roster? Like, forget injury, set injury aside. Mason Wynn is batting... 385 by the end of May. How's Tommy Edmund doing? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. Is there a scenario where you say to yourselves, you know what? It yeah. makes sense for us to bring up Mason Wynn now. Tommy Edmund has to be Paul DeYoung bad for you to get to that point. I think. I, I think I'm with you. I, I think it has to be more about not just him being great. Somebody's got to be bad I and think really like, struggling. Can Gorman be a part of this as well? Where you say, you know what? If Gorman and if you're right, Alex, and he does have the struggles that I'm not currently projecting, Gorman, we're gonna flip you. We're gonna put you down. Not flip like trade. We're gonna put you down in AAA. Get your head right, and we're gonna play Tommy Edmond at second base every day. We're gonna have Mason win at shortstop every day, and Brendan Donovan's gonna become our super utility player that's playing all over the diamond, playing the outfield occasionally, playing first, third, can play short, second, wherever. But that's going to be the way that we go about it for at least the next month. We see what that looks like. Because I'm betting it because of that scenario where one of the guys, I don't know who it ends up being. One of the players ends up underperforming. And if Mason Wynn continues what we've seen so far in spring, I think it's going to be hard to, to deny him that opportunity. I just think they're going to give whoever, if it is a struggling Gorman, that they're going to give him every opportunity to get it right with the majors rather than go down to the minors. And even if it's down to the minors, it's going to be such a short trip for him that I just can't see them bringing up a Mason win and playing for a week and then saying, all right, go back down, Mason. Like I, I think if he's up, he's up. And that's why he, like, I just don't really see struggles at the big league level. Yeah, I... I think it ties into all three of those guys, Edmund, Donovan, and Gorman. I, I think they're going to struggle to figure out how to get those three guys enough at-bats because they're also trying to figure out at-bats for the four outfielders, sure. too. And they can use the DH for one of those spots. Uh, but I can see where if it's Donovan that struggles, maybe they say, you know what, Donovan hasn't done the job. He's still got options. Let's send him down, and we'll bring up Mason Wynn. So I think it kind of ties into all three of those guys. 
one of those three has to really struggle for him to get called up. Alex, what do you have for better or forget it? So better or forget it, fellas, on the uh, St. Louis Blues side. Of course, we know that the Dallas Stars, New York Rangers, uh, they have their draft. Or not the Dallas Stars. It's the New York Rangers and the Toronto Maple Leafs that they have their draft picks. Better or forget it, the Blues will be selecting two times in the top 20. Uh, No, because the Rangers are at 26 right now. Um, So I... I, I don't think that I, I think those picks will be later in the draft. I'm going to forget it too, because I, I think they will. I think they will be lighter. I, I can see those teams going on runs. And even if one did say one does fall into that section you're talking about, I could see where army uses that as kind of leverage to flip it and maybe move up in Good the draft. Too. So yeah. I'm going to forget it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to forget this one because of the trade, but they will. I would bet it if it's they had the opportunity to select in this top two, because I believe one of Dallas, New York or Toronto will get bounced in the first round. And that's going to result in a, a pick that's going to be based on regular season, just right? one through six or one through 16 that get knocked out of the, the playoffs or whoever goes I out. I think The playoffs is only the conference final losers that push further back. I, I thought it was one through 16 on their regular season performance. I'm pretty uh, sure. Um, say, I thought it was based on when you got knocked out and then what your standing was to the other teams that got knocked out. That would make sense. I otherwise, I mean, that's what the NBA does. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, same I, with NFL. I'll have to check this. I, I think that's the way that it is now with the NHL. Um, I think they changed it to where the only teams that change after the playoffs are the ones that end up going to at least the conference final. I, I think that's the case. Um, that would change my answer potentially, though, depending on on if that is, a, is indeed the case or not. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for Bet It or Forget It. T-Bone, what do you got for us? Bet It or Forget It, Jordan Walker is hitting fifth or higher by the time we get to the playoffs Ooh. this season. I'm going to say Forget It. I think one of the other outfielders is batting second for you. And I think that Wilson Contreras will hold on to that fifth spot. I don't think they're going to bat him lead off. I think the highest that he can get with any sort of realistic opportunity here, barring injury, will be sixth. So I'm going to forget it. Yeah, I'm going to forget this one too. I don't, that's going to be a really tough spot to be putting him in at that type of level. So I would say I'm forgetting this If one. he's awesome though, second would be a fun spot to put Yeah, on. that's why I'm going to forget it too, but I do think it is possible to where if he is playing really well and we're talking about like Jim Bowden likes to predict NL Rookie of the Year, I could see where he's hitting second. Now, I what would be curious to know is what they would do after that five spot because that's four righties in a row. So I guess you would hope to break that up with a lefty at six. But if if he's performing, I could absolutely see where they where they get enticed and say, you know what, let's hit him in front of Goldie. Or if we want to have some real fun, let's put him between Goldie and Arnado. I, I could see where they do it, but I'm going to forget it. All right, let's continue here from the 314. Guys, better to forget it. Juan Yepes will be traded before the end of this season. I'll forget this one. This is... I could see Alec Burleson struggling. I could see somebody else struggling up to where Juan Yepes hits and then comes back up and gets the DH spot. I don't know if they'd be as quick to pull the trigger on a trade with him. Although if you're going to try and get that ace, you're probably going to have to include him, but I'm still going to say, I'm going to forget this one. I think I'm going to forget it too. I, I still think Juan Yepes can be a valuable bat at the DH spot for them. And they can create a, a good kind of, platoon they are DH with Juan Yepes and then a left-handed bat whoever they elect like to use there 
and right now his trade value is, I think, lower than some would expect because of the poor spring he had. So I'm going to forget this. And plus, you, you don't trade little Albert. So, no, forget it. Uh, I think I'm going to bet this. I don't know that Juan Yepes has an obvious role for this team. I think Juan Yepes is going to go on and have a successful career in Major League Baseball. But where does he fit? Like, think just short and long term for the Cardinals. He, he's probably not an everyday DH at any point in time because that's going to be rotating Nolan Gorman's around. role and it's going to be rotating. The right-handed bat off of the bench. Ask yourself this as well. Who is he pinch hitting for? Like, think about in future years or this year. Who are you taking out in favor of Juan Yepes? I, I think late game scenario, you could do like Tommy Edmond this year. You could do if it's a left-hander. Depending on how they fare this season, Lars, Donovan. But let's assume that Lars is good. Always. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I don't know that he has a role for this team. So I think somebody's going to value him more than the Cardinals do. I could totally see him being the piece that they flip at the trade deadline. So I'm going to bet this. I think that he is, is traded before the season is over. What I would like to see them do, and I say this without knowing who the hell the first baseman is down in Memphis, I'm assuming it's probably Luke and Baker. For being honest, I don't know what his role is moving forward. Sure. I would like to see them have Yepes play a lot on the infield in Memphis. First base to where he can kind of gain some more versatility because I agree with Ollie. He can catch the ball. He's not a uh, agile outfielder. But I guess the question, though, is do you trust him or Donovan more at first? Like they might say Donovan. They're going Burleson at first base, so they must clearly trust oh. Burleson over Donovan at first. And if that's the case, I would think that Yepes can play the same amount of defense that Burleson can at first, and they are playing him at third last year. Lefty versus righty, though, too. It's where it gets really tough is like his right-handedness is something that's going to potentially play against him. I get it, but here. when he has no splits like he did last year, they should also do that. I, I, this whole, like, hey, he's right-handed, so we got to use him as right-handed bat. Okay, but he, he hits both. Like, I, for as much as the Cardinals talk about it, the numbers and what they like to do with matchups, it clearly hasn't played a factor into Juan Yepes because he's had no splits. Um, so I, I just want to see him work at first base. He wanted to do a little bit of third. I mean, last year he was playing third base too. But they should they should have him work on that in the minors to where it adds more versatility. And if Burleson struggles, there's your backup first baseman if you end up sending Burleson down. Uh, next one up, better to forget it, guys. Dennis Gates will make a final four before he is done at the University of Missouri. Why don't you look at me? I was going to let the Illinois fan speak first. I'm going to forget it. Why? I don't want to see it happen. <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to forget it for now for as exciting as Dennis Gates was last year. I want to see him repeat what he did this past season before I can really jump on board because it once is a fluke twice is something that's sustainable. And I, I think he can do it again, but I want to see it before I jump on board. So PTSD I'm going to forget with it. Brad Underwood. Hey man, we can do one and done. I, I'm going to bet this one. I'll say he gets there. I mean, we've seen this season that the path does present itself to be pretty damn easy. Um, and unfortunately, they couldn't capitalize on it. And that was in his first season. So if this is the way of college basketball, where paths do present themselves to be a little bit easier than expected, I could see Dennis Gates pulling it off. I'm going to bet this as well, because why not? As we have heard from some very important people, cost you nothing to be optimistic, helps you live longer. Why Coming up next, name? Dennis Gates earned the benefit of the doubt this season. Even with an addition like this, we'll tell you who that is coming up next here on 101 ESPN. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Top of the key. Oh! Big time delivery. Racing. Pull up. Three. No good. Rebound Carolina. And the fairy tale ride for the Tar Heels continues. That audio courtesy of CBS, of course, native St. Louis. And Caleb Love was one of the heroes for the UNC Tar Heels as they went on that run to the Final Four last year. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Guys, the big news yesterday in the transfer portal is that Caleb Love is going to be entering his name into the transfer portal. Now, there have been no updates as of yet on where he's planning to go. But this is a guy that has hit some of the biggest shots in the biggest possible moments for a team That was on the biggest stage possible at North Carolina. He has averaged 16 points each of the past two seasons. He is a perfectly solid rebounder as well. However, there are some warts to his game. He is a guy that shoots about 30% from three-point range, and he takes a lot of them. This past season, he shot 30% and shot about seven and a half three-pointers per game. Highly inefficient, and that's been one of the blemishes on his resume over the past couple of seasons. He has the ball a lot. He shoots the ball a lot. He hasn't shot it at a particularly high rate. He draws some comparisons to like Russell Westbrook type of a player where it's like, it's so much fun to watch, but is this helping you win basketball games? It's hard to say sometimes. I love Caleb Love. I really enjoy watching him play. I thought he was an excellent recruit and man, I wanted him to come to Mizzou after last season. Now it sounds like they have a real chance to be able to bring Caleb Love home. Alex, when you think about who he is as a player, what he's done on the highest stage, and the warts that come along with him, in your mind has Dennis Gates earned the benefit of the doubt to where if he came to Mizzou, you would think you're getting the best possible version of Caleb Love at Mizzou? Hell yes. Absolutely. Because, and maybe I'm just jumping all over this because I love the idea of Caleb Love uh, coming back and playing for Mizzou, but... To the Dennis Gates point, I mean, how many players were transfer portal players that he had on his roster this past season? I mean, it feels like it was, it was nine. Was it nine? I was going to say, I mean, four of the five starters felt like they were all transfer portals like that. And maybe they didn't have the warts that Caleb Love has with UNC in terms of those shots and just type player that he is. But when you bring in a ton of different dudes from transfer portals and you give them an opportunity for a team like that, it comes down to a coach and how he manages the personality and how he can mesh them all together for one goal. And he was very successful with that this season. So if you get a Caleb Love, who's from the area, who is hitting the transfer portal because it's not going the way that he wanted it to go at UNC, where a couple of years ago he was final four, Dennis Gates deserves the benefit of the doubt to give an opportunity to somebody like this and say, we can get him right. I think so too, just because it's in one year, we saw the improvements. He was able to uh, have Kobe Brown, how how he was able to help improve Kobe Brown's game, Demoya Hodge, everybody on that Mizzou team and how he was willing to 
hey, don't be afraid to shoot the ball. We want you to shoot the basketball. Now, granted, that 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 motto might change if Caleb Love were to come here, but I, I think he has earned the benefit of the doubt. You saw a lot of guys take kind of that next step underneath Dennis Gates and his coaching staff. So if they are able to bring in Caleb Love, yes, I, I think you probably will see the best of Caleb Love here at Missouri, and I, I think Dennis Gates has earned the benefit of the doubt until it just goes too poorly for him, and I, I don't know if that will happen. Yeah, I— I think he's earned the benefit of the doubt. Here's the one downside, though. Missouri, one of their best three-point shooters this past season was Des Moines Hodge. Now, they just added another one. They got a Colorado State transfer that's going to be coming in, and he's going to basically replace the Des Moines Hodge minutes next year is what the expectation, I would assume, is. If Kobe Brown doesn't come back, and you add Caleb Love, and he has to be placed into that three-point shooting role, that is not what you want. What you do want is him attacking downhill. And this is why I like him more at Mizzou than what he had this past season at North Carolina. If you're somebody in our audience that is a North Carolina fan, you know the story very well. UNC this season basically played with two centers on the court at most times. When you play that way, you're clogging the middle of the lane. And now Caleb Love, who, Love, who is an outstanding dribble drive guy, can't really be that player. It's like having a bunch of big men for a team that Dwayne Wade's on. Dwayne Wade, not a great shooter in his career, but an excellent driver to the rim. One of the best that we've seen, a great finisher at the rim. Um, same thing is true for like a Derrick Rose. You want guys that play outside to open up the lane for these players. Uh, I think Russell Westbrook at his best is a guy that plays well with shooters around him. LeBron, same thing. If you're going to be a team that adds Caleb Love this offseason, you also need to make sure you've got the shooting around him to make to prop him up in the best way possible. So I trust him. I trust Dennis Gates that he put together a roster last season, not just by picking out talent that would be the the most talented team possible. He had clear roles. He had an identity. I've I want the team to look like this. I want it to play like this. These are the guys and the skill sets that I need to be able to do that. And then he was able to put it together this season. If you can do that with Caleb Love as a part of it, I love it. No pun intended. If you can't, then I don't think that you should bring Caleb Love in. He has earned the benefit of the doubt, but T-Bone, you would have said the same thing about Brad Underwood this past year. He did that. He went to the portal, added some big-time talent, and we saw what that looked like this year for Illinois. It it does have downside at, at moments where... You go to the portal, one year it's great, the next year it can go really poorly, just like what happened with Kentucky where, man, you get these excellent recruiting classes and you hit it the right way one year, you could go to the Final Four. The next year you might get the wrong batch of kids and now suddenly you're stuck and you end up going right around 500 that season. Yeah, I, I think we're, to, to your point on the Illinois front of it all, I, I thought that Brad Underwood had brought in the right team. The, the problem for him was that they just never I, I don't know if mesh is the right word because they didn't really mesh, but they never were able to find an identity because their three point shooters had bad years. Melendez had a bad year. Goody was hurt at the beginning of the season. So I think he brought in the right team. The problem was was that the guys that they thought were gonna live up to those expectations didn't hit it. And I, I think Love would be one of those guys if you bring him in and he's playing that slasher role to your point, I think they would have success. And I, I would trust Dennis Gates to where he would be able to make the adjustment to where I think he's recruiting talent right now, and then whatever ends up happening through the portal, through recruiting, and whatever occurs, once he finalizes that team, then he'll make the adjustments that he needs to make and figure out, okay, we're not going to be like last year's team. He doesn't have to be a three-point shooter. We're going to become more of a slashing team. That That's the thing that I think he's going to be able to do. Yeah. Brad Underwood, I thought the problem he had early in the year was he was 
still wanting to play that. He went to a five-man out um, like offense where there were five guys out, and it just didn't work. His offensive style works better when he's got a big man he can get the ball to. That's why they started starting Danger as they got into Big Ten play. So unlike, and I'm not saying I don't trust Brad Underwood. I, I do think Brad Underwood's a good coach. But I think Dennis Gates would be able to make the adjustment to where he just is bringing in talent right now. And then if he gets Caleb Love, he can make the adjustment and say, okay, instead of being this three-point shooting team, we're going to be a team that's going to get to the basket now. And this brings us back to the Jerry Brewer comment from a week ago, two weeks ago, whatever it was that we had Jerry Brewer on from the Washington Post who said, what you saw this year, I'm not sure, is what Missouri's teams are going to look like in the future. Eventually, they're going to look more like Florida State, where you've got all of that length and they've got the ability to play defense a very different way. They can actually get stops when you get into the half-court sets and not just by getting that pressure on the opposition. I think this is where, whether it be Eddie Lampkin, the TCU center that they're potentially going to be interested in, there was a new name that just entered the transfer portal, uh, Jamarian, I, be- I believe his last name is Sharp. Yeah, Jamarian Sharp. He's seven foot five. He weighs 235 pounds and runs the court really well. He's a rim runner end to end. That is somebody that I would be shocked if Missouri's not interested in. His junior college coach, uh, Jamarian Sharps, is now the assistant at Missouri. So they were oh, in on him last year. So he'll be a Missouri tie. I would be surprised <laughs> if he they are not at least in on him this upcoming season as well. The thing is with him, like every team in the country is interested in a very talented seven foot five center that is able to run from end to end. So uh they won't be the only ones that are interested in him, but if he is added, if Caleb Love is added, if you're able to get one or two other transfers, yeah, this team's going to look a lot different in 2023 as it did at the end of this past season. You're going to have way more length than they had at any point this year. Um, and that could eventually be a good thing for the University of Missouri and for Dennis Gates. Coming up next, we'll at the Rewind here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. And Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page. 101ESPN.com and the free 101 ESPN app is where you can go to find it. The Cardinal season is officially two days away, and we will be broadcasting live from the Budweiser Brewhouse inside of Ballpark Village on Thursday for opening day. Cardinals home opener finally here. We're just going to be steps away from the stadium on opening day, along with the opening drive. The fast lane will all be there broadcasting live on Thursday at Ballpark Village. All of our opening day coverage will be brought to you by Rawlings, Green Envy Lawn Care, and by Budweiser. Guys, we spent a decent amount of time today talking about the Cardinals and especially the pitching side of things and whether or not the Cardinals, it's kind of like a sliding scale where if the offense is blank, then how, how good does the pitching have to be? It's almost flipped from where it used to be with the Cardinals where it's like, hey, they've got the pitching do they have the offense this year? It's more of a, they've got the offense. Do they have the pitching? Let's go bigger picture here because Dave Schoenfeld of ESPN.com was asked earlier today in a piece on their power rankings, 
what would the season be a what would be a successful season for the Cardinals? Here's what he wrote. The Cardinals season will be a success only if they reach the World Series. The Cardinals seem content to win what has been a soft division in recent seasons, in addition to roughly 90 games per year. They've also gone one in nine in their last four playoff series. They've lost the wild card series in 2020 and 2022, and then they lost in the wild card game in 21. And then that goes back to getting swept in the 2019 NLCS. Will they be able to get further in 2023? They do have some exciting prospects on the way, but if Goldie and Arenado slip from their high level of production in 2022, even the division title would not be considered a guarantee. So for him, a successful season in 2023 for the Cardinals only exists if they're able to reach the World Series. Alex, what would be required for you for this to be a successful season for the Cardinals? I would go a step below that and say reach the NLCS um, because you'd be doing it for the first time since 2019. And I guess to add a little uh, caveat into it is be competitive in that NLCS. I don't care if you lose it because that's a step in the right direction considering it's been wild card and out, wild card and out. I'm with Alex. I think it's an NLCS for the Cardinals because I think a World Series is a little bit too much to ask for this team. I think they're a year or two away from being able to get to that point just because they need to make upgrades to the rotation, as we've talked about. But I think with this offense and the hope that Jack Flaherty can be an ace, they have the potential to get to an NLCS. My hope would be that they can potentially avoid that wild card round, but that's going to be a tough ask. So I, I would say it's get to the NLCS because that means you're one winning a playoff series in the wild card round and potentially taking down somebody really good in the DS and really building momentum as you get ready to hit kind of the peak of this winning window that that they won't say it. But we can see on the outside looking in, they're getting ready to hit with all the young talent they've got coming. I've got a regular season bar that I think they can clear. 95 wins. Second seed in the National League. If they were to get the second seed in the National League, and then let's say they run up against the Mets, and at the time, Diaz is back. They've traded for Shohei Otani. They had a tough start to the year, but uh, you ended up going up against the Mets in the NLDS. Hold and on, the, did you say the Cardinals traded for Otani? No, the Mets did. Oh, um, The over. Mets end up beating you 3-2 to two because, I mean, you've got Scherzer, Otani, and... Verlander. Who am I missing? Verlander as yeah. as three of the starters. They end up beating you in those three games. What are you going to do, right? Would that be considered a successful season in your mind? Well, yeah, for me, because you had no chance of beating the Mets if that's what you're going up against. Because I, I think that's a realistic scenario. It's, it's the number two seed, I'm just still skeptical on because, man, I mean, that's going to be tough with, with the Mets, the Padres, and the Braves. Like, those are the three juggernauts because of the Phillies injuries right now. The reason I'm asking is because I think everything has been focused so much on the postseason in recent years. Because while the Cardinals have been successful in the regular season, it has also required, I mean, you look back to 2021, an unbelievable finish to the season. You look back even last year, it was a very good second half, really, that catapulted them into the postseason. If they are able to sustain just an excellent overall regular season, they win like 98 games and finish as the second best team in the National League, and you take into consideration what the NL is right now with so many great teams, does that change the bar for the playoffs for you? Because I do think it also sets them into a trajectory moving forward where you're like, man, we're in a World Series window now. We really can compete with these other teams in the NL depending on what they do in the offseason. I I think that could make it a successful season as well, regardless of what takes place in the postseason. Is that fair, or do you guys disagree with that? I I think it's fair. I I think it just depends on how they get bounced in that matchup. Say it is the Mets with Otani in that that series. Because if you do have a top offense in baseball, 
though that is a really good rotation, your offense should give you a chance, and your pitching, the pitching will be the biggest one that I will focus on because that will be the spot that is going to be spotlighted throughout the season. If their pitching ends up laying an egg, then I think it's disappointing because I think this team is good enough to where even if they lose that series, they should be competitive in it because they are that talented. And if you get a two seed, you don't get that by mistake. You you get that by being a really good competitive baseball team. So I think it would just depend on how they get bounced out. But if it's competitive and they lose in like five games, for example, then yeah, I think I would say that's a success. But if it's a sweep and you don't look competitive, your pitching's bad, I think it would be a disappointing season for the you Cardinals. You get the two seed no matter what. It's looked at as success because you're talking about 98, maybe more vic- or wins on the season. But like in terms of postseason, because I do think it's two separate conversations because you just don't want to regress or stay the same in the postseason. And if it's the same story, third straight year of uh, you got to the postseason, you had a great offense, but it went cold in the playoffs because you went up against a great pitcher. At, at some point, that narrative starts to get really old. It's definitely going to get old, but I think almost regardless of what happens in the playoffs, I would consider that to be a success. And that might sound weird. The reason I feel that way is because if they have the second best record in the NL this year, and this is me projecting a lot here, I think it suggests that the offense worked and that the pitching stabilized and they found something in the bullpen. And now you look at what it's going to be in 2024 Maybe they end up opening up the purse books a little bit because they say to themselves, hey, if we have a number one starter, we can go up against that Mets team and we can have some success against them in the postseason. Now, they may also say, hey, look what we did in this in 2023, where we had the second best record in the National League and we didn't even have a number one starter. So I I don't know how it would end up going, but you've got Mason Wynn on the come up. You've got these young starters that are on their way. I could see how this would be seen. 10 years down the road as, hey, remember 2023 when our winning window really opened up or that was the start of what was a championship four-year stretch of really going for it. So I I think that for me, it would be considered a success regardless of what happens in the postseason, barring something ridiculous where they lose like 30 to nothing by a combined score in those three games in the NLDS. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Alex will be back with you guys tonight for pregame coverage starting at 6 o'clock for the Blues versus the Canucks right here in your home of the Blues 101 ESPN. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane's coming up next from 2 to 6 right here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.